to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. On this episode, I headed over to John Pena's house in Wilkinsburg to chat. I first met John when I arrived in Pittsburgh for graduate school and always found him to be warm and kind. John also received his MFA from Carnegie Mellon, but in 2008, well before I had even considered art as a possible career. John went to Columbia for a year before returning to Pittsburgh. From time to time, John teaches classes at Carnegie Mellon, so I always saw him running into the faculty lounge between classes. Over the four years, I slowly got to know John, from studio visits, grabbing a beer at the bar, or reading John's comic, Daily Geology. John's practice is vast and wide-ranging, from racing clouds, sending letters to the Pacific Ocean, and constructing large-scale plaster word balloons. This conversation touches upon many topics, from trying to have control over things you have no control over, to forgetting one's language to escape the past, and residing in the space of discomfort and disappointment. Some of the topics in our interview are intense, dealing with depression and death, so proceed with caution. John also speaks about his experiences passing as white in some spaces, while being seen only as a Mexican or othered in other spaces. I also was annoyed at myself for interjecting so many yeah, yeah, yeahs and right, right, rights while John spoke. I got so interested in our conversation that I didn't even notice myself doing it. Also, as a heads up, John requested that I beep out a few names to protect the privacy of some of his friends and family members. In any case, I hope you enjoy this. I don't mean that in a bad way. Oh, yeah, yeah. I took it in a bad way, though. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so how are you? Let's start with like simple questions. Ooh. How's your day? So is it okay if I turn my head like this when I talk, or should I try to keep it straightforward? Uh, try to keep it straight. <laughs> but, Does that spike when I laugh? Uh, do a laugh. Ha, 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 ha. We're good. Okay, good. I'm pretty good. I had, uh, I didn't know I had ocular migraines. I didn't even know what these were. What, yeah, what is it? So I learned about it through daily geology, actually. So what happens is I get, I'll, t- I'll explain it. I get this thing where when I get like crazy stressed out, I get like, um, this little circle develops in my eye. Okay. That's like a rainbow filtery looking circle and it blinds my right eye. Like I can't see like for temporarily okay. and it like expands. So it takes about a half an hour to fully expand. But during that half hour, I can't do anything that requires motor skills really because right. it's dangerous. So I couldn't drive. Like I was going to see my accountant today and I was like, hey, I gotta, I'm going to come a half hour late because oh. I got to wait for this to pass. Wow. And it passes always about 30 minutes or so. But then it leaves me the rest of the day feeling like I ran a marathon. Oh, it drains like it, you physically. It, somehow. It's mm. just so wild. And uh, I didn't know what it was until I made a drawing about it. And then I posted it like on social media or whatever. And then people were commenting like, oh, that's an ocular migraine. I get those too. And I was like, oh, I always thought a migraine was like a headache. And they're like, no, no, it's like a – it, it is a type of headache, but it doesn't hurt the same way. So apparently I get ocular migraines. It's a blood clot that expands? What is it? I don't know. I haven't figured it – I haven't researched it fully enough because mm-hmm. it's so uh, optical. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a – yeah, yeah. I right. haven't been able to figure out. But I just know what the – effects of it are and i usually know what causes it i right. usually can't i usually don't know what's going to happen 
But once it starts happening, I know it's going to happen. Yeah. And I know what to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. And, Eyes are complicated things. I think they're one of the things that people, I mean, there has to be a reason for it. But like they're one of the things that I think people aren't sure how they evolve because you can't have half a working eye. Right? Like, so what is that step that suddenly gets you an eye? That's right. You know? Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. And also, I really do notice how much stress affects vision. Mm-hmm. And like, I remember talking with a therapist or no, it was a psychiatrist. And they were saying that they've known patients who have gone temporarily blind from uh, mm. trauma. So like your trauma level can affect your your ability to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you get all worked up and stuff. Jeez. Yeah. If this right. happened, is it random, daily, weekly, or? Uh, not very often. No. Uh, maybe I'd say like once every six months or so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's seasonal to start charting it. Yeah. I guess I could go look at my daily geologies and see yeah. when the last one was because yeah. I usually end up drawing about them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this morning was a little rough. I'm sorry. But. Are you feeling drained now or? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think it was also because after that when did my taxes or not my taxes. I meet with my account three times a year to like get stuff the, in the, line. The quarterly? Yeah. Like quarterly. You're good. Yeah. I've been getting a lot better at it because it used to just be that. I would wait till the end of the year and cut a check for like four grand and I was getting tired of doing that. So. Yeah. And I don't even, there's, there is like a, uh, you do get charged for. Yeah, you get like a small penalty. But I never figured out how much, but it was like, it's easier. Yeah. But it's, but it's also hard if you're an art because I realize a lot of it's like based on how much you expect to make. Sure. And a lot of times I have no idea what to put. I always you know? struggle with like that. Like I've changed jobs so many times. Yeah. And then like, I also in my head know like I won't be at this job for a while. So right. like, it'd be strange for me to project like, Two months out, and knowing that I'm not going to be at this job in the third or fourth quarter or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I feel really bad because we're drinking seltzer and I just burped, and that's going to be in there. So sorry about that. Okay, this is not studio set. <laughs> okay, good. So what I was going to say was that, like, in regards to estimating, like, usually at the beginning of the year, I have a good sense of kind of what my income is going to be for about six months. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be teaching more, but I don't teach nearly as much. So yeah. now it tends to be like art sales. Um, public art project uh, contracts that are finishing up or starting and then um, freelance work. Like I'll do like uh, consulting work or carpentry work. Right, right. right. So I kind of have a general sense, like maybe 1500 a month kind of thing or whatever. Yeah. But then the summer is always really confusing because there might be a year where like, Oh, I got this big commission for twenty five grand, and like that, then I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna ride that out the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah. Or it'll be like nothing. It'll be like razor thin, and I'll yeah. be living off savings for three or four yeah, months, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. I'll get some gigs and pick up the. Yeah, yeah. But it's get it's it's getting a lot better. Although when I met with my account, it was really funny because I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm like really lean right now. What's going on? And then I was like looking at it, I was like, oh, I haven't been doing the same stuff I do every year to promote myself to make a greater income so it was like oh i should do more of that stuff so it was like oh yeah. I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm gonna do a book release in october so that'll be helpful and all that another kind of day the 2017 yeah the newest daily geology okay. i'm gonna do october 20th with uh over at copacetic with okay. bill right you've done that every every year at copacetic right? yeah i did it for the first two years at copacetic and then last year i did it at handmade arcade mm. and it was a different vibe there it didn't it, i didn't sell nearly as much mm. as i do when i do it at copacetic but it was still nice. I mean, it still made a profit. It wasn't like yeah, yeah. a bust. We fall into the, the old trap of artists get together to talk about money and then businessmen get together to talk about art. Talk about art. That's right. Yeah. We exactly. haven't really actually talked about any art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we're so busy making it, right? We're like... I know, right? Yeah. It's like nice to, I guess, not think about it or try to think about it in a useful way because art yeah. is so... I don't know if you agree, but I think art powers the fact that it's useless. 
Right, right, right. That it exists for a reason that doesn't necessarily make any explicit sense. Or doesn't have to be justified. Right. In in the sense of capital. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you mean that explicitly with capital? Or do you mean it in general? In general. Yeah. Yeah, I think in general. Yeah. Wouldn't you say so? I think capitalism has a way to fold back into itself or find a way to fold that uselessness into itself. Sure. You know, like all those, all those like bad videos and photographs of early performance art that's that now are in the archives of institutions and money and a board, you know, like that was never meant to be. Right. Right. And now you, now they are like um, early fluxes boxes. Those are like so much now. Right. 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 They're just like, you know, I can imagine them just being like a dumb project that they're like, yeah, let's just, do this or they were meant to be iconoclastic to a certain degree or, yeah, yeah 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 that's true i was just wondering if i'm capable of thinking outside of capital you ever have that thing where you stop and think well i just made the statement to you out loud where i said you mean within capital or without of capital and then i thought do i even have the capacity to think outside of that well i guess you're lucky because uh your work has allow capital i guess to sure. be part of it i've never really sold work so i've never yeah. had to i've never had to think about it Grapple i mean it. i i mean i do have capital right my capital would be like cultural capital right. like services rendered. services or like impressing these jurors on these residencies that i'm applying right. to but that right. becoming would, finalist yeah being finalist over and over again <laughs> um but yeah i mean i mean that is capital but it's different different it's not linked to a material object that yeah. can be explicitly transferred between states. Yeah. And I think it's for me, it's been useful just because no one's doing – not a lot of people are doing video art because it's not sellable. Right. You know, I, you know, weeds it out, right? Everyone does yeah. painting. Everyone does – and then from there, like sculpture, maybe photography. Other photography is in a weird state. Sure. So you're then, feeling a void. You're like filling a void or something. I'm feeling, like. I'm feeling a cultural void in these in these specific institutions and like, yeah. That's cool. I like I think, thinking I think, about that I way. think, at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's all we have, right? Yeah, 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 Well, I was thinking, like, when I was in grad school, because we both went to CMU, and, like, mm-hmm. I got out in 2008, right, at the height of the economic crash. Oh, yeah. And I remember thinking, all right, this is it. Like, if I could make a living, I remember saying to myself, like, if I can do art most of the time for yeah. the next five years, I think yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Like, I think that means if I can survive this climate yeah. still making art, yeah. I think there's promise. <laughs> And so was it was it harder those two years? Oh my god, five years or whatever. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, it was brutal. Yeah, Yeah, it was much more. uh, There was just it dried up. No one was hiring, right? Yeah, no one was hiring. Grants dried up, resources dried up. It was tough to find. Yeah, any type of gig. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, but I managed to squeeze things in here and there. Do a little carpentry work. Do a little install work. Mm -hmm. uh, Lots of different stuff. Write some grants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So someone someone once said, uh, "You want to you want to try to work." And then take time off to do art. And then when you go back to work, make sure that the next time you go do art, it's a longer period than when you work. Sure. Yeah. And that's a keep, good way. Keep extending it. It's a good system. Until like until you either get through a cycle where like at least you're continuing to go back to art. Yeah. Or I guess ideally you increase it to the point where you're no longer working and right. just doing art. Right, right. Or the art is the work. Or the art is the work, yeah. Yeah, so I got out when I got out of school. 2008. Yeah. I was, I was, looking, doing... I was looking at your resume just like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, scouring that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think I had any marketable objects. I think most of the stuff I did was ephemeral. Yeah. It I mean, was... that's one of my questions, but you should go. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. It was- uh... I was curious about that transition and- Yeah, I think I did a lot of like the, the probably the most quantifiable thing I did was like a mural in, in Pittsburgh, you know? And even that I hired out because I was out of the country when it 
got funded. You were in you were, you were in um on in Columbia. Yeah, Columbia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I think that a lot of the work I did was largely funded through as a service. It was mm-hmm. I got a check cut for services rendered, mm-hmm. and it was usually a service that engaged an audience of some type, engaged yeah. a community, yeah, uh, that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do you want me to expand on that? Up to you, or, or are we or we can talk about. Uh, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to decide if we should go more into your bio, or or we could keep talking about your earlier work. Your earlier work, like earlier work, like early early work. Oh no, I mean stay in this early work area. Oh sure, you sure. Know? But like, I mean, one of the things I noticed, as I mean, I knew I knew about it briefly when I first met you, and I just quickly scoured your website. But I just I noticed what I was interested in was that shift in what you're talking about, that ephemeral sort of performance slash performance performative acts sure. that sort of shifted to uh i guess your comic books and these sort of word balloons yeah you know yeah that transition happened so gradually yeah like so imperceptible yeah in a way i think it uh, i'm trying to think of how the transition happened so i was in south america i was doing a lot more like photography documenting interventions Should we first set- Go over why you were in South America. Oh yeah, so I was doing a Fulbright down there. Uh, yeah, so I was doing that for eleven months, ten months, eleven months. I don't remember something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so part of the time I was doing teaching some art courses and language cultural courses at the Univalle the University. Oh, you were an English teacher. You didn't not quite. You. It wasn't that. It was weird because I remember when I told you how. Yeah, you had a weird situation where you were like sort of on the wait list and then they gave it to you last minute or something. No, I wasn't on the wait I was, I was rejected oh, okay. from another country. Oh, and then yeah. Fulbright oh, said, yeah. we're offering these grants in Colombia. Mm. The Fulbright Colombia contacted me and said, we have these teaching assistantship grants. Mm. And I said, that's not exactly what I want to do. Yeah. But they pitched it in such a way where they're like, you do 10 hours of that a week and then you have the rest of your time to do your whatever you want to do. Yeah. So I was like, sure. So that's partially why I ended up under that umbrella. Okay. But since it was this first year of the teaching thing, it was a much more nebulous structure. Right. Like pretty much everyone left me alone. Like no one contacted me. Who were you me. teaching? Who was I teaching? Like oh, uh, high school uh, students? No, no, no college. college. It, was at the, it was in the art program and the language program. You're teaching art classes and English. No, I wasn't teaching art classes. I was working with with the art classes who people who wanted to do who wanted to improve their English. I was okay. working with them on projects. Mm. So it was like a really weird gray. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was working in the language department, and most of that was just one on one. Okay. Like I would just work with people and. And what was your project then? I ended up doing stuff completely outside of the university. Right. I ended up documented public documenting public art and kind of the merger of sign painting, especially. Okay. So like there at the time, there were so many people that were making a living on the informal economy, right? Uh, there were like, the city was built to hold about a million people, but it holds about 3 million. Yeah. So about a million of those people are part of this sort of mm-hmm. like street vendors, stuff like that. Yeah, and I was yeah. really fascinated by the ways that they were selling their wares on the streets. Like mm. people would paint the sides of trees white and hand paint their products on it and huh. stand there and like you buy stuff from them or they'd like hand paint things that were selling cell phone minutes and you'd go up to them. And I remember they had belts and chains hooked to their belts with cell phones attached to the chains. Yeah. yeah. Like a public telephone, but on a person. Right. Right. So I was doing a lot of research and work around that aesthetic and that. Did that come to something? Yeah. I ended up doing a collaboration with some robbers where actual rob people who rob people yeah yeah except i wasn't working with them we were collaborating uh in a weird way where there's a street by where i was working at the university that Mm -hmm. someone had stenciled spray painted on the post um 
it had said uh, Zono Robo de Cellulares, which is basically saying, don't talk on your cell phone here, you'll get it robbed. You'll get robbed. Okay. So some amazing person was like noticing that people were getting their cell phones stolen a lot. Right. So they decided to put up a sign saying, spray paint a sign saying, don't be yeah. over here. So those were up for a couple weeks and then they got all painted over. And I was like, the city would have never painted those over. The city doesn't do with that kind of stuff. And then it dawned on me when talking with friends. No, the robbers probably painted Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then me and my friends there at the university. Resprayed it? We didn't respray it. We uh, we pasted. We I had taken high-res photos of them. So we printed them out in color. Uh-huh. And then we, we pasted them back up all the time. So it would be a little harder uh, to deface. And because uh, we like – I think we put something on top of it that made it hard to paint too. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Or right, right. Uh, so it just kept going back and forth. We would put those up. They'd paint them black. We'd put those up. They'd paint them wow. black. And so it's like unfolding uh, conversation between these people we never met. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that – there's a good example of like that's not a marketable thing. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. that was just something that I did right, right. that ended up manifesting in a story. And then I also did some sculptural work where I didn't have any tools while I was down there. So I hired or kind of collaborated with a carpenter down the street for me to make these dogs out of found wood. Okay. So I was making all these, cause there's a lot of street dogs and I kind of wanted to like, I tried imagining what would a street dog look like manifest through the materials of the neighborhood. Right. Right. And it was very much the detritus of the neighborhood kind of. So we made these like little dogs out of right. scrap wood. Right. And right. I put those up in the neighborhood and stuff. So little stuff, interventions type of stuff like that. So yeah, so that was a material connection that I had that I think is when it started to shift a little, or maybe I gave myself the allowance to indulge in material mm. in a more explicit way. And, and then, also maybe you were in grad school? That's a big one. I think, yeah, being in yeah. grad school, you're very much trying on other people's jackets, right? You're trying to put on a jacket and see if it fits. Mm-hmm. And you try a lot of different ones. And then sometimes you put one on and you think it fits, yeah. but it might only fit for the context of grad school. Right. It doesn't actually fit to help you become a sustainable artist yeah. for your own self. You know? Right. Although so, I would say that I think a lot of the CMU artists, or the history of CMU artists have been successful because they've made these like stupid installations that don't exist except institutions. Sure. Yeah. That, that I've noticed as I've gone to different, I've met other grad students that not as many uh, schools promote that kind of. Oh yeah. Making insane stuff that has no applicable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like you go to other schools and like, they're making these like beautiful sculptures sure, yeah, even if, and, or like, even if they're like not beautiful in the traditional sense, they're still like these things that exist in gallery spaces or like beautiful paintings. Yeah. You know, and like, I was just, I remember just going, th- when I first got here, I looked through all the old MFA theses and libraries right. and I was like, and then I compared that to like all the M- other people I've been meeting and I was like, they're not really doing That's a good point. these yeah. weird installations, not saying that they're good or bad, just oh, like. Oh, no, no. I mean, but that's the value. I mean, I think I treated my, my grad, the grad, the time in grad school as a long residency. Yeah. Like I didn't, I tried to approach it as like, I'm just going to make a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I did. I yeah. just stayed busy making a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I, I would say not, maybe like a couple things were okay. Yeah, but yeah. by large, it wasn't very good. But it was important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I appreciate it. Did you, what you think of grad school? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I feel like, uh, feel like it was the right time, the right place. Everything about it made a lot of sense for me. Mm. Um, so yeah, every time I cut that student loan check, I feel good about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the rare loans or like one of those rare things where I might be one of the few grad students I know who's okay to cut a student loan check and yeah, yeah. hate it as much or something. Yeah, yeah. But that's also because I'm living, I'm an artist. Yeah. Like, most of my income comes from art. Right. So like, I think I, if I were working a different job, 40 to 50 hours a week and cutting yeah. that student loan check, that yeah. might be harder. So there's all those trade-offs, right? Yeah, yeah. Where, again, 
we were talking earlier about the psychological effect that labor has on you, yeah. right? Where if you're mm-hmm. working set up till sundown, digging post holes, it's different if you're doing it for your own house versus if you're doing it for someone else. Right, right. Or if you have kids to feed or right. family to... Or you know, you know it terminates at some point. Or you know it terminates at some point. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. It does. So yeah, I think that... Um, oh, just to clarify. Yeah, I wanted to go back because you were saying... The ETA Fulbright Fellowship is its own separate thing. Yeah, yeah. It's the English Teaching Assistantship Fulbright. Right, right. And then the other one is research, um, usually post-grad. Yeah. And then there's another PhD one that can right. be anywhere from two months yeah. to 10 months. Right, So right. the one I was in in Columbia was the ETA. Okay. But the way that I actually unfolded was yeah. very different than right, right. anyone I ever met who did the ETA. Right, right. Um, which I thought was really funny. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you would appreciate this. We would have to meet up and we met up as ETA people in Colombia and like Bogota or we went to Mexico City one time to like share what we were working on. And like everybody was sharing like all this language teaching stuff they were working on and I showed my Zono Robo de Cellulares project. Yeah, yeah. And they were like – they did not know how to even like process it. Yeah, they were like, yeah. uh, I, we, like I could tell that they were a little nervous because they don't want to condone like what I was doing, right, too because it's like the whole point of doing this is like not to engage – People who are robbing people, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was like, yeah. it was really complicated and I could tell they were super, didn't know how to land it. Exactly. Right. Um, you were sort of revealing the systems. A little bit, like by having the freedom to do that because yeah. of the negotiation, it revealed like, oh, wow. Yeah. They're, <laughs> or maybe they just thought I was going there for like language teaching or something. Right. Maybe they thought I wanted to be an English teacher and yeah. they didn't realize exactly what I was or something. Anyway, so I thought you'd appreciate that. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to clarify that for people who are interested in that type of program. They're very different. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I knew this, but when I applied, I knew that I didn't want to do that because yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I want my own time right. to be able to do my own research. Sink in, do yeah. your own. Yeah. And I don't think, yeah, looking back, I'm so glad I did it. So it's hard to have regret. You yeah, know? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you're also like being positive. Yeah, right. It's like, it's, it's kind of like we all justify whatever path we take. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, for at least, at least if things are moving forward. Right. Right. Yeah. Again. Because there's, yeah. there's no, there's no. What's the, what's the other option? What's the other yeah. like, philosophical yeah. option? Right? Yeah. Or existential. Yeah. Rather. But it was good. I mean, it's, I mean, like, how can you complain? You got paid to travel to yeah. Colombia. Got a monthly it's, stipend to do whatever I want. And then and, 10 hours a week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the midst of a economic world crisis. Yeah. That's true. You know? Yeah. That's a good point. Oh, anyway. So wooden dogs. And then after that, I went to Skowhegan. Right. So your wooden cows. And I made a wooden cow. Oh, Skowhegan. It was good. Yeah. I, uh, I was an early riser. Uh, like, oh, like get getting up, up early in the morning. Eating party every night. I don't, I didn't drink at the time. Okay. Yeah. I didn't start drinking until like 31 or 32. Well, this was a conscious decision. Yeah. My dad's an alcoholic, a recovering addict, alcoholic. And there's a lot of family of alcoholism. And So how did you make that switch? To start drinking? Yeah. Um, how did I make that switch? That's because that would be scary, right? Yeah, I think it was in conversation with my therapist, actually, because we were talking over the years, because I've had the same therapist now for 10 years. Uh We were talking over the years, and he was questioning if my desire to not drink is fueled more out of wanting to control things I have no control over Mm. versus just not liking drinking or just not. But you haven't tried it, so you didn't know. I haven't tried it, so I didn't know. Since I was 18 or whatever, when I stopped. Um, Because I drank a lot when I was like, 14, 15, 16, okay. that age or whatever. So I, th- I just kind of stopped at 18. Right. I was like, all right, I got to just, yeah, yeah. this is not good. But he, he pointed out some things I thought were really interesting, which is that 
so much of my personality and identity was linked to not drinking yeah. as some sort of principled stance. But really, it was me being scared of what I'm capable of, me being scared of the darkness inside of me. Isn't that a valid reason? Isn't that why a lot of people who do have a history of alcoholism don't drink? Maybe for them, but it was an excuse for okay, me. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was clearly – it was clear that I was doing it to avoid having to sink into more painful feelings. Mm, okay, as opposed to the alcohol itself. Right. Okay, I see yeah, what you mean by yeah. – dar- I, I thought – okay. That's what you mean by darkness. I think yeah. I, dar- I think meant darkness as an alcoholism. Oh, no, 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 no. Right, it was right. more that like – yeah, it was more that – I was afraid of seeing, I was afraid, I wanted, I was so afraid of seeing something that was unknown that I was more okay to completely have it absent in my life mm-hmm. than to face the fact that I might have to make a tough decision right. or face the fact that I might have to negotiate with life and be affected by life mm. in a meaningful depth, like way, which is interesting. That's interesting to hear from an artist too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Because right, artists, artists, you know, I think it kind of makes sense when you like look at artists and why they like smoking, drinking, yeah. uh, sometimes eating. I've, I've known artists who don't really care about food. Right. But it's sort of like it's about the senses, about like right. experiencing life. And that there's that that kind of manifests both in your art but also like living it. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's sometimes, stra- it's sometimes strange to me an artist who's like really boring, sure. wearing khakis. Sure, sure. Like, Bun down t shirt, yeah, yeah. low volume, and you're yeah. like, really? Like, you're the person coming up with these like weird, yeah, yeah, like paintings or sculptures. Is, is there's like a dissonance because, yeah. Well, that speaks, I think, explicitly to daily geology, which we can actually we, we can come back to the wood, the wooden cow later because, yeah, yeah, I think daily geology actually came about explicitly because of my fear of losing control mm. because Cause you're doing a comic, yeah, so, every so day. Just, 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 uh, just clarifying, Go. daily ge- daily geology is right. John's. Daily comic that he writes every day. Right. Yeah. And yeah. There are three books right now. Yeah. And soon then, before. Yeah. Soon before. But I've been doing it since 2009. Yeah. So I started making a daily drawing in 2009. So again, it's no coincidence that it started in 2009 because, like, that's after well, that's complete instability. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so I have nothing, like, no, no ground under which to. Stand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I just need something to do every day to ground myself, even if it's horrible. Like even if the manifestation of it is a pile of shit. And so that's how daily geology started. Yeah. And I think the first three years were giant piles of shit, maybe yeah. four years. I'll probably say that about these like later too, right? I think it was, it, t- it takes a while to get, to be an expert in something. Right. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like eight years. Yeah. That sounds about five, right. Five to eight years of, depending how many hours you put in. Right. right. So mine was about an hour and a half every day. Yeah. Oh no, now it's gotten less, maybe about an hour or so. But yeah, so that was and, – and it's no, it's so explicit too. If you look at the old drawings, they're like very carefully framed. I used to have like a stencil I would have that was five inches by five inches and I would place it on the paper and draw the stencil and then lift it up and then fit within this little thing because I was so terrified. You're like really constraining yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And furthermore, the material itself was so constrained. Like I had a, like a psychological break, like a panic episode uh-huh. in 2010. Uh-huh. And if you look at the drawings from that time, maybe I'll show them to you before you take off. They are like whispers on the page. Mm. I'm so scared of committing and bossing. I'm mm. so scared of making a mark out of fear of the unknown or fear of fucking yeah. up or fear of whatever. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That I didn't. Everything was light and just so like gingerly Dainty. placed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You really see the fear in that when you put it next to a drawing today, which right, is much right. more like confident in the the marks I'm making. Or even if it's not confident, it's 
it's out there. Already, yeah. Right. Like, yeah. 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 The insecurity can manifest too. So yeah. So that control. So what did you do that year though? Two thousand nine. So you went to Skowhegan. Yeah, with Skowhegan. But that's I came back summer here, uh-huh. Pittsburgh. Did I teach, or was that later? I have to remember because there was no teaching gigs too. Because CMU pulled all the adjunct gigs because the the economic crisis. They got all this pressure from up, up high CMU uh-huh. to get rid of the adjuncts and then to pile the extra teaching load onto the full time professors to save money. Oh. Which is funny because. Adjuncts save money because they don't right. pay nearly as much. Like six thousand. <laughs> yeah, class. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which really is good compared to other adjunct things, yeah. but also you yeah, know, it's good. For, yeah, and money. also compared to like how cheap Pittsburgh was and was yeah, still sort of is right. If you're living in this neck of the woods, for yeah. example, yeah. So I taught somewhere around there, but I remember coming back and working and starting the conflict kitchen with John Rubin and Don yeah. Waleski. So that's kind of the big thing. Oh, and I had to come back and finalize the mural that I had hired somebody to okay, do while the cloud, I was out. The cloud, yeah, the cloud mural, yeah. pen out. So I just kind of came back and then I put together some work. I remember in, I got paid to help install a mural in PPG Place downtown. Okay. I uh, did some little carpentry work here and there, did some install work, yeah, did yeah. some consulting, did some workshops for the mattress factory, okay. like just kind of a little piece meal. Yeah, yeah. Um, which you can do in Pittsburgh. Which you can more do. More easily. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. So then when I got back in 2010, I applied to the, like do a bunch of residencies and I got like a bunch back to back for like a year and a half. And one of them was in Ohio. One of them was the Provincetown, Provincetown one. Right. And then um, Wasaic okay. when they had first started the residency. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, New York. It was at the Blue Sky Project that I had my breakdown and it was uh, it was a matter of time. It was coming for me. It was like a storm off the horizon that had needed to come for a long time. Yeah. And it was control. It was me trying to control things I had no control over mm. and enacting. Yeah. And just holding on so tightly and I just had to let go. And, but it manifested stomach stuff. Like it, uh, my stomach was fucked up for like really, really bad. And I wasn't sleeping. I probably slept a couple hours every night for a couple months. Cause it would like, um, my hypervigilance and my defenses were so alert that anytime I fell asleep, they'd wake me up. So because my, you weren't in control of your body? Both I wasn't in control of my body and there was another part of me that needed to be like felt that had been mm. so closed off right. that it was basically saying, hey, motherfucker, it's time. Like, yeah. I'm here and you're, I'm shutting your body down. And so like what happened was – Sounds like Fight Club. Yeah, it's a little like Fight Club. Yeah, that's, too, that's true. Yeah, except I didn't beat anybody up. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't like destroy the credit card company? No, I didn't punch myself in the face either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't make soap. Yeah. Um, but like <laughs> – I just remember like that feeling right before you fall asleep. Yeah. Imagine that feeling right before you fall asleep, like somebody punches you in the stomach and wakes you up. <laughs> so I'd wake up in cold panics. Uh-huh. Like about, I remember like falling asleep for like 15 or 20 minutes and then waking up sweaty and cold and clammy and changing my clothes. I'd change my clothes like three or four times throughout the night and mm-hmm. hang it up all over the room to dry out, you know, cause I was so sweaty and stuff. So that went on for about three or four months. And then it culminated with like an actual breakdown or? No, I would say the breakdown was the first two weeks. Okay. Um, That's the thing they don't tell you really about a breakdown. Yeah. (laughs) Is it seems like an isolated incident, but it stretches in a way, at least Mm. mine did. Because you double down. Mm. Now in retrospect, all I had to do was let go and fall apart. Like something in me needed to fall That's apart. That's like a beautiful sentence. All I had to do is let go and fall apart. (laughs) That's all I had to do. Yeah. But I didn't. I fought it for months. Yeah. Tooth and nail. And... Gradually, slowly, I began to fall apart, mm. and it was the best thing that ever happened. To me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that 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 was when I transitioned from that residency, which I was doing like these video performances, 
uh, services rendered. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the Fine Arts Work Center where I pretty much focused explicitly on drawing, daily okay. geology drawing and stuff like that. Did some video work too here and there. But that's when I really dug my heels in and started pushing the daily geology comics and stuff. Um, and then 2011, I came back to Pittsburgh to work at, wait. To start Conflict Kitchen or the Waffle no, House? No, that, that had already happened. That was over at that point. I had broken away from the Conflict Kitchen because Don and John, I was falling apart. And like I remember, you you had fallen apart. Yeah, I was. I was like, I had helped them start it in two thousand nine, uh-huh. but then that's when my anxiety was really building, mm. and then the collapse happened in two thousand ten. And I remember just talking to John, and John's the best. He was just like, he's like, man, he's like, you're not doing so well, are you? I'm like, no, I'm not. He's like, hey, it's cool if you need to break out and not not be a part of this project. We totally get it. Like, because I was slipping, like I was mm. dropping the ball, not answering emails, not following through with things right. I said I needed to do, just being really irresponsible. Yeah. And he could see it. You know, he's like, yeah. John, I totally get it. If you just need to break away, just do it. And it was so great to have somebody say that. And it was yeah. like, oh yeah, you're right. That's totally what I need. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And so I stepped away from the project and they went on to do it. And it was awesome. Uh, but it was really nice to have that, to have somebody be able to see you going through something and yeah. to give that, offer that up as a, you know, because I remember some other people I thought were my friends at the time were just being dicks. What they say, like, just get over it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of just get over it. A lot of just like, yeah. Yeah. Just really. I mean, I understood that they were frustrated with me. Like I was having a hard time following through flaking yeah. out and stuff like that. So I get that they had every reason to be frustrated. But now in retrospect, I am a little surprised that they were so cruel about it. Mm. Like I think about my friends now who when they're going through a tough time, like if they flake out on me, I don't like take it out on them. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, Are you okay? Yeah, like yeah, I'm yeah. Like, concerned about them, but these people weren't particularly concerned about me and kind of weeded them out pretty easily as friends right. for the long term. Um, so yeah, 2011, I came back and taught at CMU. I remember that because that's a really vivid memory because I taught concept one and a lot of those students that I had in that class have are now coming back to me and being like, that was the greatest experience. Like in retrospect, yeah. like seeing how it shaped their career paths right. or the decisions and stuff. And it's cool. Yeah. Uh, having people reach out after so many years. Could you describe what the, what, what concept studios is? Yeah. Concept studios is a foundations curriculum course for CMU, the equivalent of another class, another university would have like basic design or, mm-hmm. you know, 3d design, 2d design. But instead of focusing on the elements and principles of design, the class and foundations, a concept studio focuses on concept. It focuses on, I would say that the, the, the larger overarching, umbrella is learning to work through problem solving skills with different materials, exploring the relationship between materials and ideas, exploring your own interests uh, as they align with why you choose a particular material, Mm -hmm. allowing a material to dictate an idea. I think that's one I add to it that isn't part of it normally. Like allowing the material to dictate the idea. Yeah. Oftentimes I I, I see people teach it and it's fine. I mean, everyone has a different way of teaching where they say, come up with the idea first and then pick the appropriate material. And I think there's a valid time and place for that. But having been work making art for 10, 15 years now, I don't know a whole lot of artists who work that way. Like I really don't who sit there and go, all right, here's my idea. What's the material? Like I know a lot of engineers. Well, it's, well, it's usually more way. muddled. Yeah. Oh, it's it, way more it's, muddled. It's, not, it's, it's like. Conversation. It's, it's, yeah. It's a constant back and forth. Like here's an inkling of an idea that might not actually be anything. Correct. And then let's either draw it, you know, sketch it up, Maya, yeah, render it, Maya whatever, render, right? whatever. Yeah, and see, then see like, about it. Who cares? Just see what happens. And then yeah. like based on whatever manifestation that happens, you're like, oh, like I don't like this. Or you pick like one small segment that you like. Absolutely. Right. And then from there you're like, okay, maybe what material you try in that material. Right. And then sometimes that material 
it becomes about the material and, exactly, the, and the idea yeah. falls away or sometimes like it pushes you into a different direction and it creates right. a new idea. Right. I would say your description you just gave right there would be perfect for my syllabus. Because <laughs> that's like, that's, but that's it. it. It's but, not, that, but that's like long form. That's right. right. That, that, you can't really do that in like a semester with students only really working during class. Right. You can <laughs> set the tone yeah. and hopefully set the foundation a little bit. Yeah. Or nudge them in the foundation. Yeah. Like one of the most common questions I get from the students when they're planning a project or working through a project is like, here's some ideas I have. What's the best idea? And then I say to them, I usually go flippant and I say either they're all great ideas or they're all shit. <laughs> I usually say like, that yeah. doesn't matter right now. Yeah. yeah. It, what matters right now is like, what's your gut telling you? Yeah. Like, go what do you, lean. what do you want to do? Yeah. What do you want to do? Yeah. Lean in. I usually say gut more than what do you want to do? Because the do has the quality of the intellect. Like that's something that I'm really cautious of because the students at Carnegie Mellon are so fucking smart. They reside almost exclusively in the intellect yeah, and to the detriment of the spirit, yeah. the gut, yeah. the heart, yeah. all these other, the body, right? right? Like they, like they, they will disregard. I, I know this is being really generalized, but I find that students, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, they often reject anything that doesn't come from the intellect or anything that contradicts or right. messes with the intellect. Yeah. So I usually try to be deliberate about saying like, where's your gut leading you? Yeah, where is yeah. this, what is this sense you're getting? Like, yeah. Not this, not the head per yeah, se. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't mean that the head should be gotten rid of. It's about incorporating the intellect into the whole of your being and not just solely that space. Right, right. So I would say that's a big part of what I do in concept one is try to help them lean into the totality of what they are and yeah. what they can be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say that's kind of the overarching how I teach it. Yeah. So in that way, material doesn't matter. Concept yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's all, you know. It's all fluid. It's all fluid. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'd come back and taught that in 2011. Had a great group. We did like a collaborative performance at the end of the semester. Oh, nice. Uh, which was great, which was really awesome. And yeah. then it set the tone for all the concept studios I taught from there. I gave everybody an option halfway through the class if they'd like to do something collaborative and every class has always said yes. Hmm. So every time we've done a collaboration. Like as end, a group or in the, like in twos? No, as a group, as a whole. Yeah. 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 And That's they, good. I, I don't, you just forget how much you learn yeah. collaborating. It's crazy. Yeah. Like I always, I have such a like complex where I think I don't know very much. And then when I'm teaching, I'm like helping them and I'm like, reminded like oh yeah they need to learn this stuff like yeah, they yeah. need to be taught this stuff like they need to be guided and like yeah like i had um i was in tennessee and with jess and i moved to tennessee for a couple months or for a semester in 2016 and i taught painting and professional development so i taught like a painting one and then painting four but it was mostly more career right right to professional development stuff yeah. portfolio and um the painting one class was so awesome to teach because I expected them when it was time for the first critique to go in ahead of time and hang all their work and get it ready for discussion. Because that's well, how CMU students would do it. That is how CMU students would do it. But even CMU students I've learned need to be taught it too. Yeah. Because when I got there, no one had done anything really. They just kind of leaned their paintings up against the wall and they're like, we don't know what to do. Huh. And then I was like, oh, right. Is so painting I was like, one or four? The one. Okay. Yeah, thank God. Okay. I was like, <laughs> so I said, let's go down to the wood shop. We got a four foot level, six yeah. foot level, torpedo yeah. level. Drill driver, yeah. impact driver, screws. I like got it all out. Yeah, yeah, like got yeah. it all out. I yeah. said, all right, here we go. Flip the painting around. Showed them how to attach wire. Like, oh, whether it was a stretcher bar, wire, whatever I was doing. And I was yeah. like, okay, let's measure the height. Like, let's figure that out. Yeah, how do yeah. you hang it? Here yeah. you put it in. Here's so you check for level. 
and all that stuff. And I said, and I just took, we had a critique that was three hours. I took an hour and a half before the critique to show them how to hang a painting. Mm. And then I said, I'm really glad we took this time because every critique we have from this point forward, I won't have to do this again. Yeah. And when I come in, when you, you expect, come in, yeah, you expect we'll that see happen. This. It'll be awesome. Sure enough, the next time it was so great. They yeah. were all helping each other like a half hour before class. Yeah, yeah. And it was so awesome to see them working with each other. And you're like, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. You forget. Like you have to teach that. <laughs> Instead of just getting mad. And creating a sense of community. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Because art yeah. is about community. It doesn't have to be, but at least that's what I've always been drawn to. Sure. Yeah. Community. Like minded. People mm-hmm. with the same feeling of being broken. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. I mean, I think I mean I think I've no, well I say maybe because I feel like maybe when you get older, it, it, the, the sense of community can easily fade away as you as life hits, mm-hmm. you know. But I feel like that's what I've always been drawn to for residencies because it's like a real excuse to go to art camp and yeah, like totally. have a very concentrated time to meet a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Whereas like. You know, part, being part of the art community can sometimes get a little tiring, like going to art openings, yeah. saying hi, and then like going home. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I I was actually flipping through a daily geology because I was trying to find something for someone. Uh-huh. They wanted a print or something. Yeah. I saw the drawing I made of your guys' opening, you and Brittany. Uh-huh. When I first met you, you had like made that tidal wave. Yeah. And like I went to your opening and then the drawing is me lock, unlocking my bike and going home. Yeah. And it was like, the drawing was about how everybody at the opening was asking me what I was doing. And I think I was going to go home and watch like The Dark Knight or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like, that was it. And I was so excited. And I was like, yeah, just what you're describing. Like sometimes you just need to disappear. Yeah, yeah. Or sometimes you don't want to do Yeah, what, what, what everyone else is doing or go right. out to the bar or whatever. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, you just want to go home and watch yeah. the sunset. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny thing about that. Oh, community. I remember... There's a general thing in the zeitgeist when I was growing up. I don't think it was for my dad. I think it was more in school, high school or something yeah. maybe. That as you get old, that people would often say something to the effect of like, um, you know, enjoy your years while you're young because those are your best years. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until I got like 35 or 36 that I was like, that's fucking depressing. Because the implications of that are that the people saying that stopped growing. Because everybody I know who's still growing it, life keeps getting better. Yeah. So far, it has been for me. And se- like, like not in the sense of like mentally. I sure. Feel, I feel like, I feel like I still have so much that I want to learn. Right. It hasn't been to the point where like, this is, I mean, it's difficult, but like, you know, some people you meet and like they go to a nine to five job and then they go home and they don't have anything else to do outside of that. Right. 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 And I'm not, you know, it's not like a judgment call. just like, that's just whatever happened, either life Right. Decisions that were made. But like, you know, they're always open to like go to a bar. Sure. And, and like meet up with people because there really isn't something else for them to uh, latch on to. Right, post, right. Post college, whatever. But then it makes you wonder when did we like when did we stop growing? No, I don't know. Or like that's the thing. Is I like, think well, when life hits, I guess. Right. When you get a mortgage, yeah. you, you're forced to get a job or you're, <laughs> you're forced to get insurance. You're forced to pay for kids, child care. Yeah. You know, that's a funny phrase, turn of phrase forced, right? Because <laughs> it begs the question of like the existential crisis of when you realize that it's a choice. Yeah. Right, then yeah. you realize like, oh, the, I I have agency here. Yeah. Aside from a philosophical conversation about right. whether we have free will or not, let's I mean, just it's say for, but it's also forced in the sense that like there are things associated with 
to making those choices that make life also potentially more fulfilling in other ways. Sure. Right. Yeah. Like I don't have a house. Right. But like having a house is also nice. Right. You know, having a place to put all my stuff. Yeah, that's not, right. not feeling not up, a storage container. Yeah. Not feeling uprooted. Yeah. Uh, and those are all like push and pulls. And I, I guess the ideal world, I guess you just be rich. Right? Yeah. So you could have the house and travel and not worry about work <laughs> and have, have your insurance paid for or that whatever. That like its own kind of hell though in a way too, right? Yeah. I always wonder about that. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. There's or, a price for everything though, right? There's a price for not moving. Mm-hmm. There's a price for, yeah, I think about that. Yeah, I think about that all the time. We all pay prices. Yeah. Oftentimes you don't know what it is until right. years later though. I mean, it goes back to like, you know, when you get something, get a residency or a grant, it's like you don't, they're all paths and you don't quite know what's right. good or not. And the price for like not getting this residency meant sure. you may you might have time to do more work or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Dig in or something. Yeah. yeah. But that idea, that sentiment of younger years are the best years is depressing. See, I see. I, I think I'm having more fun now than I did in at least college. Oh, absolutely. 1822. Oh, but, 100%. You know. <laughs> I'm also, I think I've just been in earth a little longer, so I'm a little more settled. Even yeah. if it doesn't mean the house, just yeah. like being in the world. Yeah. Like feeling a visceral connection with the lived experience of a human being. Yeah. I've had more reps yeah, yeah. in it doing that. So I'm probably going to feel a little more comfortable. Right, right. Um, but then it's always being pulled out from underneath me. Yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing is like, is it that I'm more comfortable or is it simply that I'm more comfortable with things being pulled out from underneath? Right. Like I'm more familiar with that feeling of loss or grief or yeah. things being taken away while simultaneously things being enriched. Yeah, it's just something like I think about that. We have our dog Coda, yeah. you know, and like so many times where I'm just like, he's laying down. I just go lay next to him and I'm like, you know, one day I'll be petting you and I'll be putting you to sleep. We'll be putting you to sleep. You know, like one day Mm -hmm. this will all end. And the reason that this moment, me laying here right now means anything is because that end is coming. Mm -hmm. And it's such an interesting experience to inhabit. Right, right. It's like future grief because it's not future. You can feel the grief. It's like you're time traveling. And you go out and do something because of that. And you go, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I think I saw like Neil deGrasse Tyson saying like, I think someone asked him, wouldn't it be great if you lived forever? His response was like, no, because I wouldn't get anything done because there'd yeah. be no point. <laughs> there'd be no point. There yeah. would be no point for me to do anything because I can live right. forever. Right. Which isn't, yeah, which I guess mentally we can't, it's physically impossible to think about that. Sure. Right. We think that we, no one knows what would happen. Right. Maybe we would be useless. Maybe we wouldn't. I don't know. So I've had the luxury of hanging out with this guy, Tony, who's uh-huh. 98. Okay. Because I'm doing this public art. The Laramie the Project. Yeah, exactly. And, um. Or Larmer, Larmer. Yeah, I say Larmer. It's it's weird. Like all the people who live there say Larmer, but then a couple people who live there for a real long time say Larmer. So I don't even know anymore. Yeah. And uh, so I've been working for like two years doing this public art project where we're sharing their stories in this like marquee yeah, thing yeah. out front. But Tony and I have been hanging out a lot. You know, I usually go over every week or whatever. We'll go grocery shopping together. And he's 98 and he's still nimble, agile, telling stories, trimming his bushes outside his house. And he is he's a very conflicted individual because his, he had a wife of 70 years who passed away two and a half years ago. Mm. So it's like, that's like a level of grief that I can't even, that, yeah. that's like, that's like double my life lived, yeah. right? Like yeah. I'm 37. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'm a little older than that. You to have someone in their life that yeah, long. Double. Yeah. That's crazy. And like. Like how much they know each other. And how their house is a museum to her, right? Yeah. Like he's still there. Yeah. And he cared for her when she was dying. And we were trimming the hedges one time and he said, um, he's like, get up there in those thick branches, you know, those dead ones. And I was like, oh, what? what's up with here? He's like, we got to get those. And 
trim it over. Like, why are these so hard? We got to sharpen the blades, get up there and trim. Yeah, them. Yeah. He's like, oh, those those are the years I couldn't trim those because I was caring for her while she was dying. Oh. So those branches are a fucking manifestation of his caring for her. I was like, Jesus, yeah. that's heavy. It is. And then like to think about like he takes so much joy in life. Like he's out there smiling, trimming, out there trying to stay busy, stay busy. But also at the same time, one time we were talking, he was just saying like, you know, everybody wants to live to be a hundred, but nobody realizes what that actually means. To live to be a hundred means everyone you know and love dies. Mm -hmm. The only people who are still alive that he knows are his daughters. Mm -hmm. And his youngest daughter is 65 and his oldest daughter is 72. And unless they live close, they probably can't see them that often. No. Because right? traveling's yeah, tough. traveling's a, yeah, tough at that age. She can't drive anymore. Yeah. But like the resonance of that truth that we project to the future as I'll always have more time, I'll always have more time, or things will be whatever. I never feel like I have enough time. Oh, yeah, it's true, right? Yeah, exactly. And just that idea that like, yeah, just that idea that we all think we want to live to be really old. And we do. I wouldn't say – I'm not saying that when I turn 80, I want to die, but I am – we think about it. Yeah. We all think about it. We all think about it. Yeah. But to see him say like, yeah, it's it's tough. Like I was telling – the way I described it to Jess was we're going to get married soon. And I said, Jess, we're going to have like a, a celebration yeah. next year for it though. Because yeah. yeah. this year we're just doing the courthouse and the next year we're going to do like a big yeah. event here. Congratulations. Thank you. And I said, Jess, imagine every single person who comes to our wedding will be dead. Right? Because think about Tony and his wife. They got married in 40, 1947. Uh-huh. That means everybody who came to their wedding, I pretty much guarantee – their kids weren't born yet. It's probably dead. Like that's a profound and like hard truth to swallow. But to think about that, it brings in a new perspective into a wedding. Mm-hmm. Right? It really goes makes you value right. like, oh my God, all these people together like that? That's incredible, yeah. right? This is like a perspective I never had. It's a, it's a real sense of celebration. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's been pretty wild. Did, did she, what did she say to that? She's thing? like, yeah. She was like, yeah, you're right. That's, yeah. 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 What was I thinking about? There was something that reminded me of. Oh, I was thinking about, I was thinking about, um, like, this is the first time this ever happened. Uh, like, you just live your life. You're in it all the time, right? And you... I'll explain it by way of example. When I had the opening, we had an opening at Space Gallery where I was part of a group show there. Oh, I saw that show. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, with the word balloons about anxiety. What do you think of that show? Um, I don't know exactly. I don't know if I've formulated (laughs) an opinion yet. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know exactly. I think that it's pretty excited about my piece. Yeah. To be self-interested. To be selfish. (laughs) No, yeah. Um... The, the connotations of identity play seemed much more charged with poli- like a political yeah. agenda or political tilt. Than you wanted? Maybe that I wanted, than I had expected. Maybe not that I wanted, but I was fine with it. It was more just I, I didn't realize until I was installing and seeing the rest of the work that I was the outlier because I wasn't explicitly engaging with identity politics. Mm. And it felt like a lot of the work was. Right. Um, and then, and then I was like, "Ooh, should I be?" And then I was like, "Wait, what a weird question!" Because so much of my identity is formed around anxiety, and so much of my identity is formed around like recognizing the ego and mm. trying to dissolve the ego, not through destroying it, but through looking at it. 
okay. or examining it. Yeah. Um, my therapist always said breaking down defenses and egoic postures and things like that is a lot like taking a well-oiled machine with all these gears and you want to just bash it with a, with a, with a sledgehammer, but that actually feeds it in a strange sort of way. Like mm. it's like your act of enacting the bashing just gives it more oil in a strange right, sort right. of way. He says, but examining it, exploring it without judgment, just looking, noticing, exploring uh, is like putting a fine grain of sand in it slowly day after mm. day. See what happens. And see what happens. And then eventually you put enough sand in that thing and it starts breaking down before you realize it. And it doesn't have the same effect that it once had. It's a weird image. I like yeah, it though. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's fitting. So the exploration through the word balloons about this idea of anxiety because the word balloon that you first see says – Sometimes I just don't know how to be in the world, but it's crossed out mm-hmm. because I've made that piece that said, sometimes I don't know how to be in the world. So I talk and I talk and I work to yeah. try to fill the emptiness for uh-huh. the mattress factory. I right. made that in 2014. That was a big one. That was a huge one. It was like it was a room really, size. Yeah, yeah. It was really big. And uh, that resonated a lot with people because I still have people come up to me and say like, I remember that so vividly, you know, they really it connected. And so I wanted to kind of clarify that point because over the years, I realized that that's kind of a lie. Like part of it's a lie. What's a lie about it? The lie is that sometimes I don't know how to be in the world because to say sometimes I know don't know how to be in the world is already a lie because what it's saying is, well, first off, you don't need to know how to be in the world. Mm-hmm. Being isn't something you do. It's what you are. So first off, the illusion of control is already there because that even the statement I'm making is me attempting to control something. So dissolving that control means letting go of that sentiment, uh-huh. but letting go of that sentiment means clarifying it. To a certain degree. Mm-hmm. So that's what this show is about, is okay. revisiting and clarifying that moment, right. that, that sentiment. That's right. why it's crossed out. Mm-hmm. So then the next balloon says something like, what I'm really trying to say is, to try yeah. to clarify, you yeah. know, it's really something is being stirred inside of me that I don't want to feel. So I attempt to escape it by reaching for anything, whether right. it's chocolate or beer, or fucking my phone, whatever yeah, it yeah, is, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Noticing that I reach as an effort to not have to feel whatever's emerging because right. the reaching is familiar and I know what I'll get which is nothing. But turning within is hard because it forces me to feel something I don't want to feel. Mm. But the truth is I might want to feel it, but I wouldn't know that because I'm always running. Right. So busy running right. from it. So the balloon almost ends by saying, I always thought of anxiety as a feeling, but really it's not a feeling at all. It's the act of running away from a feeling. So mm. I always equated anxiety with like, you know, feeling happy or sad or anxious. But then the more I've examined it, the more I've noticed it's not actually a true feeling. Because anytime I feel anxious, there's something else I'm feeling that I don't want to feel. It's a replacement. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's like a, yeah, it just it's got, sits yeah. on the surface. Yeah. Um, and then the balloon ends with it crumbling and smashing. Um, it's sort of like a baited moment where it all collapses. So yeah, that's the identity play. But in that particular sense, I wanted to re-examine that idea of anxiety as an intellectual but you, pursuit. But you felt like based on the show that it was placed in a different context that you didn't want maybe? No, no. I didn't mind it. I think it was more surprising. Mm. I guess it shouldn't have been surprising because the name of the fucking show was Identity. Yeah, I wasn't surprised. <laughs> so I shouldn't have been surprised. Yeah. But I guess I, I didn't think about it that way, yeah. which I think is more telling of the way I process information maybe. Okay. Okay. So you're saying when you thought of Identity Play, you thought of like a, your own ego identity play, not like racial identity play. No, I didn't think of my own ego identity play. I thought of just how we construct identity Mm, and how identity is constructed and using play as a vehicle for exploring how we construct identity. Mm -hmm. That's how I approached it. Right. Whereas it seemed like 
The other work was more rooted in a critical examination of racial identity, racial identity yes. or sexual yeah. identity or yeah. whatever identity. Yeah. So that's yeah. what I meant. Right. Um, whereas, and those are different things. They're yeah. just different. Yeah. Um, there's a place, I guess there's a time and place for everything. Right, right, right. I find myself very uninterested in criticism and criticality. I find myself becoming progressively less interested in huh. it. And I find Which that- is funny because what you just said was all like hyper grad philosophy talk. Oh yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> you know, interesting, you know, right? You know, but like, I guess the reason I find myself less interested in critic in criticism, and I'll be explicit in so to help define the grad talk, yeah. which is to say, criticism for the sake of having an opinion about something. So what I mean by becoming less interested in criticism is I mean I become far more interested in exploring things without judgment. Exploring mm. them as textures yeah. in the world, mm -hmm. textures in my experience, textures in my interior, yeah. exterior, that type of thing. Because mm -hmm. I often find that the most limiting thing I can do is have an opinion. <laughs> it's like so wild to realize that. Yeah. Like I can be, I can think of myself as the most open person in the world, but right. if I have a strong opinion about it, I'm not listening to anybody. Right. But I'm pretending to listen because yeah, I'm yeah. saying I'm open or I may sound like I'm open. Right. But really, I've already formulated my opinion and I'm looking for right. ways to reinforce it or galvanize it. So that's what I mean by why I become less interested in criticism. But it also could be that, I mean, I'm also finding that outside of school, there really isn't a chance for real opinions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wait, clarify. Well, because like everyone's nice in the world. Like, Are they? Like, 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 like you know, you're not going to go up and actually have a real opinionated discussion about an artist's work, out, you know, oftentimes outside of an institution. With that sort of depth. You're not even really going to talk about art outside of it. Right. right. That's my point. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's like you go to gallery sure. opening and it's like, oh, that looks nice. Sure. And exchange a few contact info. Right. Uh, you know, even go to like Q&As of art lectures. Sure. And they're like really bad questions by people sure. who you don't know. Right. Or, and then you also realize that the lecturer has been outside of the institution oftentimes so long that they also don't know how to right. engage. So there really isn't, unless you're actually a teacher. Sure. Or like you do some, you know, some circuit of yeah, yeah, yeah totally, totally. Uh, art criticism, or a museum director, or somebody yeah. who wants to, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but even then, like, there's also niceties, niceties attached to that. Like, you yeah. don't want to like step on anyone's foot. Yeah, where are you getting these niceties? I don't get a lot of niceties. I well, I say niceties <laughs> in the sense that criticality. How's that? Sure, sure. That's what I mean. <laughs> you mean the absence of the absence of Got right? It. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'm also maybe my movement away from it has more to do with context and proximity. Yeah. And less to do with a deliberate choice. Yeah. Because I mean, I only go to, I mean, that's also another reason why I love these residencies is because yeah. like it's sort of grad school. Not everyone necessarily wants to partake in those dialogues, sure. but you can't have it because like you're literally there, yeah. usually in the middle of nowhere with nothing else to do yeah. and you're just staring at art. There's nothing, yeah. usually there isn't something to get in the way of that. Sure. Usually everyone's in a similar hierarchy, right? For the most part. Yeah. Because I think that I... It's not like you're approaching a famous artist or, or not famous artist approaching you right. or a director. And it's like, there's a hierarchy where like um, right, the discussion right. is so muted because of that. Idea. Well, also the time and the place for criticism is probably what I'm most interested in. Yeah. There reaches a point in my process in the studio where I need criticism. Mm -hmm. I need critical yeah. feedback yeah. and I seek that out deliberately. Yeah. Whereas in grad school or residencies, oftentimes it's, it might be more unsolicited because you've placed yourself in a situation mm. And you've given yourself over to a particular 
uh, philosophical structure or pedagogical yeah. structure yeah. for that to unfold. Whereas now, as an artist outside of those contexts, I can seek it out when I, yeah. need, when yeah. I need it right. and trust myself enough to know that right. I need it. Which yeah. is the most helpful thing about grad school. Yeah. I thought. Yeah. Is right? knowing when to say no. Yeah. I need to and also, and also, also being aware of that other viewpoint and when to seek it out. Like, right, you know, right, right. As opposed to like never having it. Right. I wonder what that means to never have it though. Because we all are discerning. To what end? I mean, I, I guess in my mind is like when I meet artists who like found early success formally and was, sure. was it were able to sustain a career either because they immediately got a teaching job. And so they never had to think, I don't know if critically is the right word, but think grad school critically ever in their life and things have formally or their gut instinct has worked out so well for them. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's interesting because as you mentioned that, it made me think, I think I replaced academic criticism with paying the bills, which <laughs> which was its own effort and energy of criticism. Yeah, yeah. Because you yeah. have to be critical and discerning about the jobs you take. Yeah. You have to be able to set aside your ego to yeah. learn a new skill, to yeah. pay the bill, like all this stuff. Yeah. Like I feel like the void that the criticism left behind was yeah. immediately filled with surviving. Yeah. And then eventually moving away from just surviving to trying to thrive. Yeah. Yeah, that's but, interesting. But going back to that show, I think I was that show I thought was interested, also cautious, because I was also like, at least me reading it from the outside, it was curated by a white woman. Mm -hmm. And when you have identity play, I'm always cautious about a sort of white curation sure. of all these different artists of color. Right. You know, right, right. and so like um Like can you see outside of the can you see outside of your own inherent bias in the right, world? Right, right, right. Right. You know. So then hopefully at the end of the day what you get is a show about identity curated by a white woman. So at least you know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like yeah. that's the, yeah. Ultimately what do we have? Right. Yeah. I have to sit with that one. I mean, I think a lot about, a lot, a lot about that, right? Like who gets to curate, who's, you know, sort of like, you know, the systems of power that forms knowledge affects sure. everything and is a bias, right? Yeah. Who, who we get to know, who we see as successful, who we right. are acknowledged um, to be successful, right? Like even I think, the systems that allow us to exist kind of dictate, you know, what we see. Yeah. You know, and so to have, that was the first thing that I noticed in that show. It's like, all right, we got a white woman dictating what they think is identity politics. Right. You know, what is identity play? Yeah. But, but you immediately leapt to identity politics through the usage of the language identity play. the usage play. of the language, also who was, who was invited. Right. right. I saw the names. Right. And names carry a lot of meaning a yeah. lot of times. Yeah. You know. You know, John Pena, <laughs> you know, I'm in Yay. That's right, um, yeah. And then a few other names I didn't know, but I think a lot of them were like uh, Latinx sounding. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, Bibiana. Yeah. Suarez. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I'll have to think about that. Yeah. But yeah, so, but oftentimes I also think just even though you yourself don't necessarily talk about identity politics, having you in a show is... Oh yeah, is a uh, political statement unto itself. Right, right, you know? right, right. Yeah, and your, you know, your name. Like I said, you can't hide from your name. Your Pena. No, yeah, you can't. And it seems like you're proud of it, right? You even have the accent of your N. Oh yeah, 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 yeah totally. I mean, I, I'm like a funny. I never fit. Yeah. I never fit with anybody the way they want me to. Yeah. Like, because I remember growing up, my mom's. Chicana, she's light, light skin. Mm -hmm. De La Rosa is her last name, which is a more Spaniard last name. Mm -hmm. And then my dad's side is Peña. Mm -hmm. And they're much more like darker skinned Mexican, 
Well, they're not Mexican. They're American. They're three generations. You know, they've been here for a long time. Both, both um, of them are third generation Mexican. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like really interesting because growing up, I was always – me and my sisters were always shunned by white people and Mexican people because mm-hmm. we never quite fit in yeah. on either one. Yeah. And so we always grew up like being stuck in the middle fighting to try to be left alone. Yeah. And I think that that really manifests a lot in my dress now, my – art making like it manifests in so many ways yeah it affects us yeah you, how can't, can it you, not? you can't you can't avoid it and i remember thinking like oh, once i learn spanish it'll all come together i remember that was the big thing i thought like oh, if i could just you, you learn learned it in high school in colombia uh, in high school i studied it and uh-huh. then i when i spoke it or in south america that's when you just it finally stands yeah. you know yeah and you had the foundation yeah. yeah yeah exactly and i just remember thinking like i tied it so much to language like i thought that because i remember everyone was always like it's so sad that you don't know, you don't speak spanish it's so sad it's so sad these are your relatives your relatives um uh, not my relatives because they were responsible for me not knowing spanish it was more like other people i met in the world okay. who were like jump in you can't speak spanish and they're just like oh it's so sad and yeah um usually other spanish speakers and stuff yeah. like that yeah I, I linked it to that yeah and i learned it and i was so excited to speak to yeah. my grandparents in spanish uh-huh. and they were like What's wrong with your accent? <laughs> <laughs> they were like, we don't want to talk to you in Spanish. I don't like the, how you sound. They're like, yeah, you know, yeah. They're like, oh, right. My fear of the language is like a childhood thing. Yeah. It's like it's a childhood mentality that if only I can speak this language, I can somehow magically be loved by you. It would, be, it would fix everything. It would fix everything. And yeah. I feel like I was Mexican-American. I yeah, feel like yeah, I was yeah. this thing, you know? And they were like, fuck you. Speak in English. Yeah, yeah. Right. And even my dad, I love him to death, but he doesn't really like speaking Spanish with me. He prefers speaking English. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I, I also think that's probably because the Spanish I speak is probably like more formal and he grew up speaking mm, in the fields, right. which is super informal. Right. Like my voc- I could probably write better than him in Spanish, right? Mm. Um, but he grew he up learning Spanish. He did, even though he's third generation. Yeah. Oh, okay. my grandparents barely speak English. Okay. <laughs> they are like they are, their primary language is Spanish. Yeah, 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 yeah. He learns all my family learns Spanish, except for my mom and her sister. Uh, my uncle, my mom's side, did learn Spanish, but that's because he was a gangbanger and they all spoke Spanish, and so mm. he picked it up dealing drugs and gangbanging. <laughs> um, and then uh, my mom didn't want us to speak Spanish because she was treated so poorly by my dad's family. And so she like – Wait, treated poorly by your dad's family for speaking Spanish? For being lighter skinned okay. and for yeah. not speaking Spanish. And there was a lot of history. There are a lot of mm-hmm. family bad blood, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So my mom tried really hard to like get us to be more quote unquote Americanized. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we moved out of the country. We moved into a small city, Yakima. Poor, just like yeah so like she she often i think i think because a lot of the um way she was raised there was so much racism back I was just, there was just so much hatred between mexican white mexican white back and forth back yeah. and forth that like yeah. and then there was another element of like gangs and drugs that yeah. was involved that like she kind of equated the spanish language with mm. like violence drugs alcohol abuse physical right. abuse like all these things so yeah. in her mind to extricate us from that type of life. From language again. Again, yeah. yeah. From language itself. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's partially why we didn't learn it. Right. Yeah. But my dad spoke it to us when we were little. I think that helped me pick it up easier as I got yeah. older. So it's really funny though in retrospect when people lament the fact that I didn't learn Spanish growing up. I don't lament it as much. Yeah. Because she did the best she could under the circumstances to get us out of a pretty horrible situation. Like I, I wonder how many people we grew up with are still alive today. Mm. 
Like we watched my dad's best friend slowly die of hep C and HIV from shooting him smack. You know, mm. like we watched all these people die, get yeah. shot in gang. My uncle got shot twice on two separate occasions for dealing drugs. For- this is in Washington State. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's just like, it's weird. And on one hand, you're like, oh, that's so sad that she removed us from our cultural lineage. And yeah. it's like, yeah, that is fucking sad. But also, you know, what's really sad is all these people who got shot or dead. Yeah. Or, I don't know. It's hard. That's fascinating. Well, I think that's fascinating also because like that makes sense. As to? As to like, I guess the need to run away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. like for me, I don't, I didn't learn it because my parents just didn't speak it. Right. In, 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 in house, they spoke to themselves and they just didn't bother. Right. So like I lamented because it's like, it could have been so easy. Yeah. Oh, there, yeah totally. Right. There wasn't, it wasn't like. It was a reason per se. It wasn't like trying to extricate yourself from a family situation. Yeah. Or from a neighborhood or a community. Yeah. Which, you know, that's, it's almost, that's almost like immigration again. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. It's another type. It's another type it's like of immigration. It's like an interior yeah. move, right? Yeah. 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 God, they should have built that wall. In Washington, it would have been a wall between Yakima and Granger. Uh-huh. Wall. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was wild thinking about that and not realizing when you're a kid, all these people, like you're like, why do they hate me so much? And you're like, oh yeah, because yeah, I'm, I'm connected to my mom. Mm. It's like just lucky to be born to her. Yeah, yeah. You know, or just like seeing those connections later in life and realizing yeah. how petty that was. Yeah, be like, what a bummer. Oh, there's something else that reminded me of when it was. The language, I think the language, the language embodied fear for me, I think. Mm. Fear, uncertainty, unknown, right. and knowledge. Right. Some sort of secret knowledge. Right. Um, I mean, like, it is knowledge in the sense that you get to hear different stories. Sure. Right. Yeah. And like, process the world differently. Process the story, world differently. Like you said, talk to your grandparents. Yeah. Like, there's slews of relatives that I just can't talk to. Yeah. You know? That's, yeah, that's It would just go sort of crazy. Yeah. You know? And, like... Just thinking about like we all have stories that end up getting simplified, yeah, and or just don't get passed on because like you just internalize it, it doesn't come up, yeah, you know, and sort of like even if you can't speak the language, it gets simplified even more in a sort of scary sort of way. I was thinking about this because I was having a very controversial conversation with somebody critically, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and it was about homelessness, okay. not not homelessness in the general sense of homelessness, but yeah. I had made a comment about how. The one thing about my family that's really interesting is they would like, it's really difficult to be homeless in my family. Like you would, like the family we have now, where we are, you would have to be taking a stand or you would have to have serious mental illness. Because your family would take care of you. Yeah. yeah. There's such an extended network now. Mm-hmm. And you, I would either have to be taking a stand out of some principle, which is I don't want help, mm-hmm. or I'd have to have a mental illness that made me have such erratic behavior that I couldn't care for myself. And the person I was talking to was saying that that's not true. I could be homeless for other reasons. And then I was saying, what are those? Yeah. And they really couldn't describe it, but they were basically saying that like, it's not that simple. Homelessness isn't that simple. And I was like, yeah, I never said it was fucking simple. I was just saying that like, it's really difficult to imagine being homeless right now. It would have to, it would take a certain concerted effort on my part or uh, mental health, you know, because I think of people in our family who have been homeless and like it was because of alcoholism or drugs. Yeah. Or it was because of mental health, which was led to alcoholism. Right, and drugs. right, right. Um, and our family constantly tried to help them. Right. You know, but they'd move back in and steal from them and yeah. get some, you know, drugs and steal yeah. from them and all that kind of stuff. 
but it was just like thinking about resources, thinking about how that shaped my upbringing and resources. And like, you know, like one thing I think that I'm very lucky that I got was an upbringing with an alcoholic father and a mother who's really good at navigating social structures and social systems. Right. So like, I'm really good at like applying for assistance if I can't pay for a bill or like yeah. get a hospital visit before yeah. I had insurance and I was able to apply for financial assistance to yeah. help defray the costs. Cause yeah. my mom taught me how to do that. Yeah. How to navigate, you know, we used Medi- to get Medicaid or whatever. Like yeah. we used to stand every Saturday in line for like government subsidy, government food, like mm-hmm. bags of beans, bags of flour, bags of the cheese and the, anonymous cardboard box yeah, you know yeah, like all yeah. that stuff or whatever you know it's just like there are resources yeah yeah and it's not as simple as like yeah it's there are resources but you have to be willing to do them but, but, you, but, also you, but you also need the foundation to you know teach people of how to use them yeah right i think i mean that's a lot of the, that's one of the criticisms or things especially about asian american communities right yeah. especially like chinese korean japanese even though we're minorities or immigrants, the familial familial structure is such that the family insists on making it by working hard, uh-huh. right? And right. so we've become, you know, certain Asians or the idea of Asia is the sort of model minority, right? If you if those look at those uh, immigrants, look at those right. uh, minorities, they worked hard, they can make it in America, right. and. So why can't other minorities make right, it in America, right, right. right? And a lot of that is like they've created a foundation. They're relatively strong right. family structure, right. uh, an insistence on academics right. that other families might not have. Right. Right. It requires more discernment when you actually explore those differences. Right. It's not as simple as being able to say, like you said. Right. Yeah. Look what they've done. Why can't others? Right. Do like this? I mean, yeah. like they found those resources, but they also came with a structure that allowed them to right. enforce, teach, and pass on. Right making use of those structures. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Systemic. Yeah. Historic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a big difference. It is. Yeah. I think we got that out of trauma. <laughs> Your family. Yeah. 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 We have a, that's one thing that I'm really proud of is I have a crazy work ethic. Yeah. A really good work ethic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, th- I always, I always say it's, it's having to work harder to make up for, uh, <laughs> The deficits. That's right. right. Yeah. The deficit of uh, being an outsider. Right. 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 Or my parents were just very explicit when we were younger that we're super unlucky. Yeah. Don't rely on luck Mm. and you have to work extra hard. Right. Which ironically, my friend pointed out recently might be my the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. Maybe. Was that I was born to parents who said, you're fucked. Yeah. You need to work really hard. Yeah. To yeah. get out of this hole you're in already. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that just reminded me of how uh, the Fulbright thing, I was trying to explain to someone when I got back how I got the Fulbright because it was really weird. It was an academic dude. And he was like, he cut me off halfway through and he was like, he said, don't try to explain what type of Fulbright you got. You got a fucking Fulbright. Just, just shut up. <laughs> and I was like, and it was really funny because at the time I remember trying to make the discernment of like, oh, I got this kind. I didn't get this kind. Yeah, like yeah. out of some sort of like idea of like yeah. mine's lesser than. Yeah, yeah. But he was like, I don't give a shit. I don't want to hear about that. You just yeah. got paid to go like what you were saying yeah, yeah. or whatever. But then the funny part about all of that was nobody gave a fuck about a Fulbright when I hit the ground. Like that's well, who you mean? Like you mean Columbia. Oh, 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 yeah. okay. It's such day and night. It's so funny that like we like there's a context in the United States. But of, in academia though. Yes. Right? Because yes. like a lot of people in the US don't know about No, that. absolutely not. You it's know? a very specific set of people yeah. that think it's the biggest fucking deal in the yeah, world. Yeah. And then everybody else doesn't even know what the fuck it is. Yeah. And it's so like, it was really yeah. funny being there 
on the ground and everyone's like, what's well, going I don't I, whatever, yeah. I don't care. And then coming back to the United States and then every time I did a lecture, everyone made sure to read that on my, yeah. you know, they made sure to like- But that's, just, but that's just lazy. That's just lazy, <laughs> that's just lazy uh, introduction, right? That's true. Yeah. You, you just know? go for the top stuff or yeah. whatever. I've been to like, so many like, you know- introductions as just like oh they just read the you know cv or the bio sure yeah yeah, yeah. that's know. true that is just lazy but i do think it's funny yeah that it's such a great disconnect oh that's what i was getting at earlier by talking about the show the how to be on uh, the show of space okay yeah, yeah oh yeah yeah well yeah sorry we got, we got I, oh no don't worry about it jess and i were leaving the show yeah and this woman young girl probably like 22 yeah. or something like that came up to me and jess and she goes i'm sorry to bother you are you john pena and i go uh <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And she goes, Oh my God, I'm a huge fan of your work. I follow your work and all this stuff or whatever. Uh-huh. And then Jess, I, I was like, I was like a little weirded out and kind of wanted to just keep going. And yeah. Jess was just like, do you want to take a picture with him? <laughs> and, then I, and, then I, and she's like, yes, I would love that. So me and Jess yeah. like posed and took a picture with her. That's sweet. And it was really sweet. And then she was like, she was just like so starstruck. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, I like turned to Jess and I was like, wow, that felt really weird. Only because... I could see in that moment she had these I- this idea of, of who you I- were. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was like – and I, none of this that I'm saying is meant to be mean to her. No. At all. It's no. just meant to say what a disconnect between the idea of a person mm-hmm. and then the person. Because mm-hmm. I was like – I remember I was walking. I was like, man, I got to take a shit. Like I was yeah, like, I yeah. 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 <laughs> like whatever crazy. Like, you know. Yeah, I don't want to stand <laughs> here right now being nice. But it was so cool – because it revealed, A, Jess said, you made her night. That was awesome. Yeah. Like, she was so stoked. Yeah, and I yeah. was like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then on the other hand, I was thinking about what an interesting disconnect, too, between, like, the perceptions we have about people versus the lived experience of the people. Mm. And it made me reflect on, like, because that's, like, a tiny, tiny experience of celebrity. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. a little micro yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it made me reflect on larger celebrity and that idea of, like, the ideas we have about these people based right. off of, like – whatever knowledge we have. Now, granted, I will say that she probably had much more knowledge of me though, because if she follows my work, she probably follows daily geology, yeah. which means she probably has a lot more information than yeah. kind of an average person who right. would be a fan of someone and, else. And also, I, I mean, I don't know, you might disagree, but I, I feel like daily geology is like journalistic in a way, because it's every day versus say like a song right. or like a movie or like a, a piece that happens once a month, right? Because right, that right. that then becomes a curated sort of experience, right? Right. So, like when a musician releases a song, like that's like twelve songs made over the course of a year, two they years, three years, over scrutinized, been, yeah, right? And, and it could be it actually could be a persona because it's right. so carefully considered. Yours is like I just got to get something out, right? And so it, um, at least when I read it, it's like I am sort of reading. Um, me processing something in yeah, that day. Yeah. Right, right. Which might not be finished. It, it right. might be messy. It might be uh, more personal than you wanted it to be. And then right. looking back, you're like, I probably, if you had to curate it, you're like, I probably wouldn't have put that. Right. If I thought, you know, if I had to curate like the 10 best daily geologies. Absolutely. Like you probably wouldn't put that there. But I would put do. the shittiest drawings there. <laughs> if I had to curate top 10, I would probably put the stuff that's like, way less interesting. Yeah. You know, because I tend to find the things that I think are really interesting, people usually don't give a shit about. Yeah, yeah. It's the things that I think are uninteresting that people resonate or yeah, that yeah. resonates with people. Yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah. Which yeah. is what I had to remember about this young woman, which is yeah. like, oh, it's not just that she's like a fan of mine. Yeah. Like clearly something resonates in the work that 
resonates in her yeah. and there feels like an alignment. Yeah. You know, I think the word people use for it is like accessible, but that's like a weird fucking word that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It almost, it almost says so much. It says nothing yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I would say like alignment would be a more apt description. Yeah. Those words that are so big that they almost kind of undo themselves yeah. are really funny. I always thought of it more from a socioeconomic standpoint. Mm. Like I always tell the, whenever I teach at CMU, I, I'll try to sprinkle this in where I'll be like, why has my dad never been to a museum? Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's, well, that, well, that's accessibility. Yeah, that's guess, true. Yeah, you're if, right. If you yeah. said accessibility, I wouldn't – yeah, yeah I'd say different something one. different. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. The deliberate yeah, – We were talking about like human being accessible. Right, right, right. That's true. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. 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 But art – no, but that's that, – I mean that's also interesting, right? Because art is very – a lot of times unaccessible. Oh, yeah. Right? Huge. And, and psychologically, yeah. emotionally tend to be the big ones. For yeah, yeah. 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 Even though you can say, oh, it's economics, like it costs 20 bucks to go to a museum. Like you can go on the free museum day, whatever the fuck. Yeah, like, yeah. You got to know that free museum exists. You need a history. Yeah. You got to um, know that there's a reason to be in that museum. You got to know like whatever. Like You need to be in like a non-oppressive space. That's right. Yeah. Right? You need to think that something there would be of remote interest to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I had a friend who he, he was uh, – inter- or not – he was asked – at the Denver Art Museum, like what can we do to make this less or more um, friendly, yeah. accessible, whatever, whatever. Tear it down. Yeah, and he was like, and the Denver Art Museum is has all these sharp angles, and he's oh, like, wow. he's like, why don't you like make it less like you're cutting people, <laughs> you know, or something like that. That's amazing. I mean, and the buildings are ridiculous because literally everything is is at an angle so severe so if they yeah like at a 45 degree angle so if they wanted to hang things they literally have to build a false <laughs> false wall to hang anything wow you know it's like the the architect didn't know they were designing a museum yeah i don't know <laughs> that's amazing but yeah you yeah. know i mean things about that or like you know i think a lot about like the carnegie museum like who owns a space like that yeah Jesus. right like who is it for? It's, you know, it's by Andrew. Car- it's by Andrew Carnegie. Yeah. Right. Who was there? Is like it, it was like a part of it was a, a residence for him. Yeah. You know, and so like. And then a last minute ditch effort to try to get into heaven. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Probably less heaven. Probably more legacy. Yeah. 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 But he's he's enough. He's got a university, right? Yeah. He's got the Carnegie Music Hall in New York, but. But yeah, but like thinking about like what space, who's the space for, who can right. even own it? Yeah. And yeah, who, yeah, who yeah. can aspire for that kind of space? Well, so that brings us back around to the original reason you were asking me about talking on the podcast, which uh-huh. was about like artists of color. Yeah. Because it was interesting, like thinking about my dad and like being field workers and stuff like that, being yeah, Mexican, yeah. but being here for three generations mm-hmm. and all this stuff and being raised in such a way where like I was neither here nor there. I could neither fit in. Yeah. With white people, I can could be right, with Mexican, right. like whatever right, ancestry right. kind of stuff. Right. And like thinking about the notion, thinking about the notion of artists of color and trying to understand, or like trying to understand to what end. What do you mean? Like to what end does that exist as an idea? What is What does it serve mm. for me? Mm-hmm. Not pe- other people. Yeah. I, I think a lot of other people yeah. find themselves in agreement with it, in a disagreement with right, it, aligning right. themselves with it, not right. aligning themselves with it. Right. I don't take a particular stance to it one way or no- another, but yeah. it definitely strikes me as like a note that I have to sit with and really reflect on to even begin to understand what that means. Because I was thinking about this because I anecdotal conversation about what I was telling you about before with the, um, the Tamir Rice painting, yeah. how we were blind jurors 
on the Three Rivers Arts Festival right, and right. how we didn't know who made that painting. Right. In fact, it was explicitly told to us, don't ask, because right, it's right. meant to be blind. And um, that being in there and then all the turmoil that was created because when it was found out that it was a white man who made it, and not only was it a white man, it was a white man who was very proud in a very kind of almost ignorant way. Right, right. And that escalated things, right? right? So right. It, you sort of have, there's a lot of levels to that, right? Yeah. That could have mitigated that where something really interesting and important could have happened out of that but didn't. Right. And I remember I didn't read any of the threads because it was just like to- attacking the it's jurors. It was all toxic, yeah. It was all just the jurors attacking us saying we we're racist and stuff and I was yeah. like, okay, sure, I'm not going to read that. I don't have a reason to read that. Yeah. Or my <laughs> friends or my other like uh, other friends were reading it and reaching out to me and saying like, you know what they're saying and everything. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't. I don't think I, I-, I read it. I heard about the article, the incident, but I don't think I remember reading it in depth enough to even get to the point where I was like, oh, John's on the Yeah, show. that's right. So that's probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, one of my friends pointed out, I was like, well, they said that in there, they said, it was really funny. They said, well, they try to every year have an artist of color. Last year, they had someone who was black and this year they had John. And then some people responded to it saying, well, John's not an artist of color. He's passing as white, so he doesn't have to worry about it. Yeah. And then it was really funny when they told me that because I was like, man, why aren't they there when I get harassed by people for looking different? Yeah. Why aren't they there when I'm getting harassed by the police? Yeah. Why? And it was just like really interesting, yeah. like being told that I'm not an artist of color yeah. and that I get to pass as white when I don't. I can try my hardest to pass as white. I yeah. can talk as white as I can possibly imagine as much as I'm doing now. Yeah. I can dress as generic as I possibly can, but I don't fucking pass as white. Like maybe in certain contexts, in extreme contexts, but in general, people look at me. They, I stand out and I know what I look like. And I know when people are looking at me, I can usually get a sense of yeah. If they're going to roll up on me and be aggressive or if they're going to ask me where I'm from, right, which always right. brings up tons of great questions. Right, right, right. Um, I remember being in – I remember taking photos of the um, – I was doing it for a public art thing. I was taking pictures downtown when the Romare Bearden mural used to be down there okay. in the station in the Steel, Steel City Station, Steel okay. Street Station. Anyway, I was taking photos. And uh, one of the Port Authority police, I remember, came up to me and, what are you doing? You know, and I was like, oh, I was taking pictures for a public art thing, you know. And he's like, wait, well, public art what? I was like, oh, I'm teaching a class. There's some public art stuff. And I remember him being like, well, you're pretty young to be a teacher, aren't you? And I was like, well, okay, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. He's like, what's in the bag? And I'm like, stuff, you know. <laughs> he's yeah. like, can I see it? And I was like, oh, I was like, so what'd you say? I said, fuck yeah, you can see it because this guy looked fucking angry and I don't want to get the shit beaten out of me. Yeah, yeah. And it's precisely for those moments of the, the the luck I was born into was growing up around people who were constantly being harassed by police because they were dealing drugs mm-hmm. or drunk or beating on people that my parents were like, if a cop ever asks you what's in the bag, yeah. you open it immediately yeah. because look what happens when you don't. Yeah. They get shot. They get beaten. Yeah, yeah. Don't be like this. Yeah. And so that's a complicated thing in and of itself, right? So I always say, I always say, fucking yes, look at my bag because I don't want you to beat the shit out of me. And so he looks in the bag and he's like, so what are you doing again? I'm like, oh, I'm taking, documenting this thing for the Romer Bearden mural. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know about that mural. And he lives up on the north side. I'm like, no, he's been dead since the 90s. You know, and then he started getting a little pissed at me because I was like saying they were correct. I was like, all right, I got to get to the next stop. So I go on the tram and get to the next stop. And sure enough, the doors open and two police are waiting for me. Like, really? Really? Yeah. And they, what, they interrogated you? They started all over again. What are you doing here? I was like, oh, uh, right, here we go. Yeah. yeah. And uh, same stuff. Like, you know, yeah. You're pretty young to be a teacher. What's in the bag? Can I see yeah, the bag? Yeah. I'm like, and I could tell 
I could tell they wanted me to push back. Yeah. You know, you can feel it. You know when they want you to push back because they really want to get – Because they're in position of power. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. They want to flex. And yeah. I and I didn't want to give it to them. I was like, yeah. fucking look at my bag. Like, I'm not doing shit. Like, yeah. And it's like – and I, that's just how I've learned to diffuse things. Right. And a lot – I've had people say to me that that's fucked up, that yeah. I should stand my ground. And I'm all for – I'm all for standing my ground, but in an instance where my own physical health is being threatened, I'd much rather do what I did, which was yeah. write down their names, write a letter, and submit it. Did you do that? I did that. And probably nothing happened. <laughs> oh, I'm sure nothing yeah. happened. But it's at the same time, like, at what point, yeah, at what point do I decide to take a stand? Yeah. And it's like part of my identity, speaking of identity, yeah. has been that of navigating complex social right. Social right. structures, right, right, and that's a way I've learned to navigate. Them, right, was to be very complicit in yeah. those types of settings. Yeah, I had a lot. I had a number of thoughts. One was, I guess, the blind jury thing. I think the blind jury thing is a very naive way of looking at things. Right. Oh yeah, totally. Right, because it, impl- <laughs> it implies that you can objectively look at things. Right, and you can never objectively look at things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the system itself structured it in such a way right. that a blind jury just reveals right. The absolute blindness, mm-hmm. right, of mm-hmm. a system of a larger right. structure, right? Yeah, and also like, you know, I think I, I think a lot about this, especially in like when I think about like, like about CMU's grad program, which is sort of like this idea in this discuss this discussion happened a lot about like, well, like these are like the best candidates, right? But like, who had the time and privilege to make these specific kind <laughs> right. of works, That's right? Yeah. Right? It's like you know, like who had the money, who had the space, who had you know, and, and a lot of times people just sort of assume that there is an objective way to like pick the best people. Right. 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 And which is related to the sort of blind jury. Well, that's assuming that my name Pena had nothing to do with me getting into CMU. I, I could have been the 17th best, but that year they were hurting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah. So there's like a lot of elements to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then also thinking about people saying that you're not, you're not a person of color and then you also being treated in a certain way by the police and back in Washington. And I feel like that's also like you also existing as sort of in an in-between space, mm-hmm. right? I think yeah. like from a maybe a police standpoint or from a gang violence standpoint, you are reduced to your race maybe in a more basic level. Right. Yeah. Right. But from like a academic <laughs> standpoint, right? Like right. I think there's there people then maybe in a different way put all these assumptions on you. Right. Right. Because right. like you're a male. Sure. Uh, you speak perfect English. Whereas, sure. whereas, whereas the cop doesn't care how you speak. No. Right. The cop, <laughs> the cop just sees you as a dark skinned person. But right. if you speak a certain way in academia, right. you're perceived to maybe have been grown up white. Right. 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 Or uh, if totally. you dress a certain way, in, you know, in your case, like you're perceived to like have grown up in a nice background. Right. In a, right. In a gated community. Sure. Uh, maybe a dad's white, a mom's white. Sure. Sure. You know, uh, you know, the whole idea of colorism, which is very prevalent in all communities. You can't yeah. escape no, it. No, it's not. Yeah. You know. Um, it is the air we breathe. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, I, you know, I hear this a lot with people who say like, you know, people who say like, oh, like, look, this is like a cast of all Latinx people, but like the comment, depending on who says it's like, oh, but they're all white. <laughs> right? They're all white. They're all white Latinx. That's right. That's right? right. You know, and like <laughs> right. there's also truth to that statement or you look at the directors, the past directors who've uh, Mexican directors have all won best director, right? Right. Guillermo del Toro, but they're all, the comment that is also associated with depending who you talk to is like, but they're the whitest directors oh, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah, you yeah, can yeah. pick from Mexico. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and so it, yeah, yeah. And there's all these different nuances 
right? That, right. That, That's that, even assuming that Mexican is a particular color. Right, right. Right. That's like another, yeah, you blow that up too, yeah. right? Yeah. But it, there's all these different layers that are associated with it. Yeah. They get really complicated really fast. Right. Yeah. Which is important, which is why I think being able, being able to recognize our value judgments and our own judgments we have about these topics is so important to be able to actually discuss them. Because it often just turns to tribalism immediately. Mm-hmm. It just shuts down. Like yeah. People just shut down. They, yeah. they harden. Like yeah. left or right, it doesn't matter. You name it. It's just it's just it's like, fuck it. I need to know the answer. I need to be able to be right. I need to be able to have this. Yeah. And then meanwhile, you have people in the middle screaming out because they're like, we just want to survive. Yeah. We don't want to be shot. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. it's just like there's like all these – Yeah, different layers. Different layers and dynamics at play. And yeah. there's a room for rage. There's yeah. a room for pain. There's yeah. a room for grief. There's room – you know, there's yeah. like there needs to be room for it all. And that's largely why I didn't go to that public forum mm-hmm. for that because I didn't feel like that was – there would be room. And I felt like the people who were coming were coming for for mom mentality. Yeah. And yeah. for and for and they have every right to be fucking angry right. and grieve and to be rageful. But I don't feel like I am the person that they need to be directed right. at. Right, right, right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, they I mean like the the racism was revealed through the system and then this you don't have anyone to point at at a right. system. Right. Right. That's how system functions. Right. Right, except for this current system that we're in with the president. <laughs> that's true. That's that, a good point. That this one is very. Uh, Woo, that's a rarity. Wanting of who to blame. Yeah, but uh, you know the best place to have these conversations is on social media, especially Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, it's worked so it's worked it's worked so well. Um, as you were saying that, it, um, I talked to my dad about race sometimes. You know? uh-huh. And uh, I mean, they grew up brutal. I mean, I, when I went to college, yeah. I remember he came to see me for lunch. I went to Ellensburg, this farming community college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He got out of the car and he said, I've never stepped foot in this town. And I was like, oh, you just never want to come here for any reason? He's like, oh, we couldn't get out of the car here. They beat the shit out of us. Yeah. The Mexicans don't get out of the car here. And I was like, oh, right, of course. I was like, right. I'm lucky enough to go to college here. Right. And I even experienced racism. Yeah, college, yeah, right? yeah. But at least I could get out of the fucking car. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it just reminded me of like how slow change or like how slow um, – how the change takes time. Mm-hmm. Like, like a, a story that I've recently been really revisiting. I think you'd appreciate uh, my dad – when he was younger, the racism was really bad because it was really small Mexican workers, some of them from Michoacan, some of them from Jalisco, and then people like my dad who had been there for many generations working the fields. Mm-hmm. And my dad went to school in Granger and he met his best friend his whole life. His name was Chris. I remember this guy. He's mm-hmm. great. He's uh this lean, thin guy with a big red beard, and he mm-hmm. taught us how to hunt and fish. And okay, we'd go, we'd go hunting. Yeah, yeah, all this stuff. Anyway, when they first became friends in the third grade, and my Chris would always scream, my dad call him names, wetback, spick, and stuff. Uh-huh. My dad, like, white boy, fuck you, you know. Yeah, yeah. They started cracker. getting fist fights, yeah. cracker, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah, yeah. They get into fist fights, bloody fucking drag out fist. This fights. is a friend or before friends? This is before they were oh, friends. Okay, okay. And this went on for about six months, and finally Chris just turned to my dad one day and was like. You're the toughest Mexican I've ever met. Yeah. And then my dad was like, yeah, you're pretty tough too. And so they became friends after this. And Chris invited my dad over to um, dinner one time when they were probably like in the fourth or or maybe the sixth grade or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And my dad's like, I can't go in there. I can't go in that house. This house. This house was like notoriously the dad hated Mexicans. Okay. hated Mexicans. So 
my dad went in and sure enough, his dad was home, picked up his rifle, loaded it up, drew down on my dad and went to shoot him. My dad took off running. And from that point, he was like, I can't go over to your house, Chris. <laughs> Chris is like, yeah, okay, I get it. So oh, okay. they, they became friends. But they just never went over to Chris's house, right? Oh, God. And as the years went by, slowly my dad, Chris's dad, accepted Johnny, my dad. Like mm. they just slowly worked his way into his life. And when my dad remembers vividly the story when they were 18. They're fishing, trout fishing on the river. And Chris's dad turns to my dad. And they're fishing alongside each other. And he says, you know, Johnny, I don't have any Mexican friends. You're mm-hmm. the only Mexican person I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, and I like you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and my dad, and and my dad was like, yeah, you're you're not so bad yourself. Mm-hmm. And it was like, holy fucking shit! If that not is not the encapsulation of how long it takes to move through to heal to fucking not even heal. Sorry, that's the wrong word. To slightly change your perspective, yeah, the slightest to not think that. Like, so what's so beautiful to me about that moment is beautiful and sad, maybe. Oh, well, absolutely. Profoundly sad um, is that the way this happened was because my Chris's dad experienced the Not, humanity yeah. mm-hmm. of yeah. my dad. Yeah. It wasn't ideology. It wasn't mm-hmm. Mexican. Right. It wasn't spick, wetback. Right. It, it was, was hum- human being. Human being first. Yeah. And then he recognized. Mm-hmm. Oh whoa! What like there are ideas I have about this person, but it's not fitting with who I've come to know. Right, this right. human. Right, and it was like to me that became such a clear encapsulation of what racism, at least not from my experience, not right. from I can't speak on behalf of anybody else or right, any other right. race. Just right. that I've seen that in my own life too. Yeah, but that's yeah. an extreme example that I think is really um, it has a lot of truth to it. It's yeah. so painful. Because it's not clean. It's not clean cut. And he could have just as easily shot him that day. Which is crazy. Or who was telling how many fucking other people he's hurt. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. But then we got like things like Charlottesville. Which right. Only, only one year ago. Right? Absolutely. Uh, I don't have an answer to how to fucking fix that shit. No. I, I All I have is my limited experience on this earth. It's hard to hypothesize about things that are so beyond my knowledge base yeah. because the historical pain of being black in the United States is something that I can even possibly fathom. You know what I mean? So it's like, that's why I have no perspective on it in yeah. terms of offering any perspective. Right, on it. right, right. I can only speak to like me being harassed by yeah. someone for me thinking I look different yeah. or being stuck in the middle. Yeah. I can speak really well about being stuck in the middle. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? And, and also from an art perspective, you know, I think a lot about that too, right? Just right. like, you know, all the, I'm sure you've seen this too. All the residencies are run by white people. Right. Right. right and so just yeah. like how you said, you were the lucky, you're the 17th out of 18th of that list, but you were the only Hispanic <laughs> right, Latinx right. person there. Sure. And so they just picked you, which uh, most, <laughs> you know, you know, you, I, you've probably seen enough jurors that like, you know, that's how it works. Right. Right. right? And oftentimes to the jet detriment of both parties. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because yeah. it's like you on one hand, like, you do need to work hard, but the other to to promote diversity because the systems are so stacked against it. Right. But on the other hand, like if it becomes sort of tokenism, right. then a person's picked who might not have the tools to thrive in the environment, and right. also the environment is also 
so white and so stacked against (laughs) that person even being part of it that both parties end up feeling disgruntled. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember someone saying to me when I first got in there that that was probably the reason I got in. And I remember saying, yeah, well, I'll still take advantage of it. I mean, there's like a socioeconomic component to that too, which is like, like, yeah, I don't know. Like being startled, growing up the way we grew up with the resources we had, I was startled at the lack of real world experiences of my peers Mm. and the students startled. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? How can you not know how to do this? How can you not? And then just realizing like, oh yeah, that's, that's just a different world. It's just an absolutely different world. Mm -hmm. Like I was thinking, um, I did this video where I'm racing a cloud. I love that piece. Oh, thanks. And uh, I did that video in 2005, right when I got the graduate. Which is amazing because you're still doing clouds. Oh yeah, I'm still up on clouds, man. I can't, can't shake it. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that video. Well, the funny part about that video is I showed it to my dad. Uh-huh. And he loved it. But the reason he loved it was because he said, that reminds me of working in the fields. Mm. Because you would never run away from a fucking cloud shadow in the fields. That was your break. That was your break <laughs> from the sun. He's like, you saw a cloud like that coming? You just said, oh, sweet God, come this way. Come this way. You're running with the clouds. Yeah, you try to stay with the cloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Oh, that's perfect." Yeah. Like, and then a friend of mine pointed out, like, clouds is architecture, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like if you're sweating your ass off and working in the hot sun, the 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 the, the word in Spanish is techo. Like, mm. it's like the roof, the ceiling. Mm. Yeah, the ceiling. Yeah, of the yeah. Cloud is architecture, right? Yeah. It's like you just wait for it to come over. You. Yeah. And I just thought that revealed so many dynamics, which is like he worked his ass off, my mom worked their ass off to give us the opportunity to make a life for ourselves that wasn't right. as brutal as their lives. Right, right. My sisters chose kind of more a more predictable life. Like they did right, more right. regular jobs. They could predict their income. They could you yeah, know, they yeah. wanted a family. They have kids, they have yeah, husbands yeah. and stuff. And it always boggles me that I or it always kind of like blows my mind that I ended up on this route because you would think if you looked at my life on paper that I would want to make money. Like you would really look at it and be like, Jesus Christ, why is this guy fucking doing this? You know? Yeah, yeah. But then I think about my dad. And if I took a job, and Jess knows this well, if I took a job just to make more money to like help my dad or something like because I can help him, but not as much as if I took a higher paying job. Right, right, right. He would kill me. Hmm. He would be like, Don't you fucking do that. Like you do this thing. Like I'm living to him the dream hmm. that he wanted for us. Right. But the dream he wanted for us, I think most people would think would be a steady income, a steady job, yeah, yeah. saving up for retirement, mm-hmm. taking care of like having a house. Yeah. And it's funny because you realize the more you talk to people about it, the more that's their projection of what they think they need to be doing. Right, right, right. Whereas and when I tell people my dad's dream for me, they are like confused. They're like, wait, he's okay with this? Yeah. And you're like, oh yeah, that's your own shit. Like that's yeah. your own baggage, yeah, yeah. right? Or that's the baggage yeah. of capitalism right, or right. America or whatever yeah. the fuck, right? Uh, whereas he's like, no, this is great. It's like, yeah. I'm always told like, be careful about advice because advice usually is what the other person wanted. <laughs> that's great. Especially in art, right? Because in art, there's always all these wants yeah. that you can't do, right? Like right. move to New York City, for right. instance. You, I get that a lot, right? Yeah. Go to New York City. Uh, do this project, do that. Things that people wanted to do, but they themselves either couldn't do or didn't have the will to do. Right. Because they lose out or risk something. Right. Yeah. I had people say that to me at CMU when I came back to what, Pittsburgh. Go to New York? Well, yeah, that too. But uh, uh, they said they were really sad that I was back. 
because they saw it as kind of like a defeat. Mm. And I was like, no, I fucking like this town, man. I'm not, yeah. I'm not working at CMU. You doing yeah, that. Yeah, I'm over yeah. here doing my thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And then over the years, since I've been here now for like almost eight years or whatever, yeah, yeah. I can tell that they're excited because they see that I didn't just come back to just kind of like not know what else I was doing. Yeah. I like yeah. came back and I established myself and now I'm making art. Right, right, right. And, but you could see, again, their projection where yeah, like, yeah, they yeah. see that as yeah. a bad whatever, you know. But, but what were you going to say about the cloud things? You showed that to your dad. Was that in contrast to what your what uh, the professors and students said? Or Oh, yeah. Nobody would have even talked about that aspect yeah. of it. It was all about – the Bastian Otter ephemeral yeah, mm-hmm. beauty of mm-hmm. nature and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, no, there's more going on here. Yeah, there's a lot of shit yeah. here. There's. Uh, Did you talk about it or you kind of let them sort of do their own thing? I didn't really talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you had a similar experience where you want to talk about things but realize that they're just going to work it out amongst themselves? Or, in just, grad school? or just too much effort. <laughs> yeah, that's <you> right. <laughs> it's too much effort. And it's also like, you know, they're, it's, you know, I think it gets difficult also sometimes being, you know, the one person of color in a class because you can't have a dialogue that allows knowledge to be transmitted. Right. right? So like, for instance, if there was another Latinx person in that class who brought that up, you could have a dialogue with each other and sure. sort of ignore sure. everyone else and then they can then learn. Sure. Right. And you feel comfortable having that dialogue, but like, you're not going to be one to tell all these white people. Right. Like, this is actually what it's about because that's that becomes um, dictating yeah, or yeah. Uh, didactic, didactic right. which isn't always fun for both both sides. Oh yeah, no, it sucks. You know, <laughs> uh, unless they're genuinely like, "Hey, I really like." You can sense when someone genuinely wants right, to right. learn and is willing to be like recognize that they're like maybe saying shit out of talking out of turn. Yeah, yeah. And they yeah. can be open to being like, oh yeah, fuck, right. But right, right. That's rare. Right. To have that. I mean I I mean like I don't know about you, but I was never asked about my race. God, was I ever asked about my race? You know? Which I which which you know, I left I left CMU and I asked that question after going to these residencies. Sure. Right? Because I kind of reignited my interest in reaching out to artists of color because I was like, oh, this is so much more fun, <laughs> right? Like we can talk about things without assuming a lot of, I guess, the structures oh, that are yeah. in place. Yeah, I've you had know? a couple. I, I didn't have anybody explicitly ask, but but like, you- but like, I but only bring about asking because I felt like I ended up learning and asking more about, say. White feminism, sure. white queerness, queerness, yeah, right. Yeah. And I'm not sure. And I learned more about it also because there's a critical mass. You you just needed right. two or three queer artists to have a discussion. I don't even have to ask a question. I right, learned about it, right. but that allowed me to enter into that space so that I could then have a follow up that built upon that structure. Sure, sure. Right? Whereas if there isn't even a structure in place, you got nothing. You got nothing, and they're also not interested. Yeah, to ask. You know, that's what I was, and that's the, but that's again the heady ideological space yeah. versus the experiential human right, space, right? Right, right, right. But and that's how, speaks, again, and how you get treated, right? How you get treated at the bar, you get treated on the street. That speaks to the intellect, yeah, or a primal fear that is based off of some planted seed of the yeah, intellect, yeah, yeah, that you've that you've taken up yeah. as truth, yeah, right, yeah. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the comments I got were less about asking me about my race and more about why I'm not doing more Mexican art like mexican style art which is a great one because i'm always like my answer was always like wait but i'm mexican american and i am making art that's what it is yeah yeah and it was like no you know what i mean like you know stuff about your cultural heritage yeah yeah 
they, this is my cultural <laughs> like I'm like yeah, I'm like, I, yeah that wrapping my head around that I yeah. think is um I struggle with that because yeah. it's like what do you want me to fucking put on a sarape and like yeah. I don't know, a pinata or something? Yeah. I don't know what the fuck you're talking yeah, yeah, about. Like, yeah, what yeah. is this idea? Yeah, yeah. But that speaks more to the idea of there's a singular identity for Mexican myths mm-hmm. or for Latino or for whatever, right? There's a right, singular right. identity and I, can, I know when I see it yeah. and I'm not seeing it. And it's like, yeah, that's a tricky one. Oh, wait, that was one last thing as you were saying that. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is so great. This comes up a lot when people know that I know how to cook. Like I make homemade tortillas and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Someone in a class found out that I knew how to make homemade tortillas and beans and stuff. Anyway, probably so reading your comic. Maybe no, it was before I was making comics. Oh, it was in okay. grad school. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was in grad school. And yeah. I said, um, I said, oh, you want me to make like authentic like chile and you know like you know everything like authentic yeah, how yeah, we used yeah, to eat yeah. it? And everyone was like, oh fuck yeah! And I was like, sweet! I was so excited. Yeah. But the thing about it is the way we eat is nothing like the perception people have right. about authenticity. Right. <laughs> because right. I said, I'm going to give you the fucking thing that we ate in the fields. Like this was the yeah, thing we yeah, ate. Yeah, yeah. And it was homemade tortillas with beans and eggs and migas and chile yeah. wrapped up. Yeah. And then you mash about eight of them together yeah, yeah. and you wrap them in foil. You wrap it in a plastic bag and then you wrap it in a towel. And then you let it sit out for about six to eight hours. Okay. <laughs> and then you open it and you peel it off. You let it sit out in the sun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or yeah. the car, wherever you have. Yeah. So I made it like as what I perceive to be somewhat sarcastic, but also truthful. Yeah. Yeah. And people were like, uh, <laughs> like it was, you could clearly see it on everyone's face that yeah. they had no reference point for it whatsoever. Right. Right. And I was thinking like, that's so, yeah, that disconnect I think is really interesting. And they were pretty graceful or like gracious about it. I could tell they were disappointed, which yeah. I think is the best thing, the best possible outcome was their disappointment. Why is that? Because it indicates all of their assumptions. Like it brings forth to the surface them having to reside in a space of discomfort mm. and disappointment. Because I, as other, let them down based off of their idea they had about otherness. Like I like when people have to – I'm more pessimistic. I'm like they didn't learn anything. Oh, they probably didn't learn anything. But they oh. sat – they had oh, to be yeah. – they had for to be a moment, for, for a moment and then they quickly forgot about it. <laughs> you think, yeah. yeah. I don't think about it beyond that because they, they just They, they, they just crazy. went to Mad Max. And yeah, that's right. I always made the joke about <laughs> I only eat my Mexican food if it comes out of a caulking gun. Yeah. Because <laughs> of the Taco yeah. Bell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like those moments though. I like moments of like – being able to share this experience mm. that's visceral. Yeah. That's like, yeah, it has the texture of a living yeah. experience. I mean, food's important. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, they tasted great. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Because when they finally ate them, they were like, oh, yeah, this tastes great. It's fucking homemade yeah. tortillas. Man. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> but I mean, like, yeah, I mean, Americans are so um, sensitive to texture, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. texture as an idea doesn't exist as a taste in a lot of uh, oh, yeah. Western foods. Right. Yeah, uh, you're right. You know, like tripe, right? Tripe yeah. has no taste. It's yeah. a chewy thing. Yeah. And you eat it for the chewiness. You Absolutely. could you could add other spices. Yeah, like but, a gizzard. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or but like the idea to eat something that's chewy yeah. bothers a lot of people. You know what I mean? Yeah, I never thought about that. It does. Is that a very American thing? I think so. Holy shit. That's wild. There's a lot about texture. That. A lot of, a lot but a lot of I mean a lot of Asian cuisine. It's about the texture. It's not, yeah, it's not, not actually, it's not about, I mean, you can always add taste. Right. But that's not of primary importance. No. It's better to have the quality of the experience, which yeah, is like yeah. chewing on some tripe or chewing right. on something. Or right. Like, yeah. Or maybe something super smooth. Right. Or, right. Yeah, yeah. 
That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Now I'm thinking about it. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to add? We talked a lot. We did, man. We, we covered everyone. a lot of ground. Yeah. We covered a I lot enjoyed it. Did you? I did. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. It might have been one of the first conversations I've had about like race yeah. where I didn't feel like the other person was super defensive or had an argument to make. What do you mean? What, wait, what do you mean defensive? Oh, I often find whenever I talk about race with people, it, it, you can feel a discomfort of defendedness. Mm. Like they need to have an opinion or they need to have a posture or they need to say the right thing mm. or not say the wrong thing. Right. It's just, it's, I don't know. Speaking of texture, yeah. it's like a texture. You can yeah. Feel. Yeah. And it's, um, it's hard. It's difficult. It's hard. Cause well, I you think, have to practice it. Yeah. You know, right. like I mean, I think I always say, I think, I mean, as I mean, part of me doing this podcast is also for myself to practice it. Right. 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 But like it's, um, race is not something that is easily talked about. Yeah. And so unless you talk about it a lot, you're not going to, yeah, you're, you're going to immediately be defensive or do you don't even know how to talk about right. it. Right. Um, and ironically, too, you have to make a lot of mistakes. You have to make mistakes. And I think that's what people own are up to of. it. Yeah, and you have to acknowledge. I mean, I, I mean, I think a nice. This is my uh, blunt way of putting it, but like acknowledging that everyone is inherently biased slash racist. Sure. Yeah. Right. And yeah, yeah. by acknowledging that, you can then move the discussion forward. Sure. Right. Yeah. And and that can be difficult for some people. Do you know the Winnicott, the, uh, the child psychologist Winnicott? Uh-uh. He talked about a thing called the holding environment. It's uh-huh. like in the 1930s or 40s, I think. Uh-huh. And it was about a mother and a new, newborn child. And uh, the mother has to create a holding environment. And it's a place where the child can feel comfortable to basically just be mm-hmm. whatever they are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if that holding environment isn't created, you produce a profound amount of anxiety mm. uh, and uncertainty. And what's the word? Um, the word I'm looking for. Nice. They just don't know what to do. Anxiety seems yeah, like a good that's word. The appropriate <laughs> word. Yeah, it's the act of running. From yeah, community. yeah. Um, no, it is. It literally isn't. <laughs> yeah, insecurity. Insecurity. Insecurity yeah, is the word I'm looking yeah. for because they don't know what to do. They don't know where to be. They're kind of hyper vigilant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like that philosophical conceit for discussing difficult topics, mm-hmm. which is to say, between you and me right now, we can create some sort of holding environment yeah. where we both agree. In this space, yeah. we're going to bring more of who we are to the space. Yeah. And it's going to be flawed and we're going to fuck up. Yeah. We're going to make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And in that holding environment, there's no room for lashing out. There's no room for me to beat you down. There's no room for you to fucking scream at me. The environment is a space where you can feel anger, yeah. but you don't have to enact it on me. You yeah. can feel anger. Yeah. But if you feel anger and I say you're enacting it, I have to sit with my shit and right. not just I have to own it and say, no, he's not enacting it. Yeah. He's just angry. And so that requires two sentient beings taking responsibility for their own interiors mm-hmm. and not and being able to sink into them and not have to escape. Right. Try to discern defensiveness with criticism. Right. Anxiety. Discomfort. With discomfort. Yeah, yeah. 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 Are you being offensive to me or is it just that what I'm feeling is uncomfortable? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And if so, is this space big enough where we can navigate it together? Yeah. And there's room to make sense of it without having to shut down. Right, right, right. So that's often what I think about when I think about – I think about that a lot with teaching. Mm. I try to try my best to create those types of environments. Yeah, yeah. They're very rare in the world. They are. And I think teaching is a one uh, – the classroom, the, one of the biggest praises I can give academia is that it's one of the few places in the world, like a residency, I guess, where there's room to create these types of artificial structures that – often do not exist in the world outside yeah. of that. Yeah. So if you can create that, 
you can explore a lot. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is beautiful. Yeah. All right. You crushed it. Thank you, John. Yeah. How long were we talking? Uh, Two hours. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.